Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, this is session number 97 tonight. Uh, we are moving along towards triple digits, which is pretty exciting. Um, uh, quick apology to folks on Twitter. So Twitter Live just changed a couple weeks back and now appears mostly non-functional. That is, when I at least when I use it and turn it on and it says live, it appears not to be live. And lots of people, well, at least some people were able to get in, but some are not. I don't know. It's all messed up. So I'm basically bailing on it until we experiment with it and see if it actually can work and stuff. Um, uh, so that's a disappointment, but I hope that uh, folks from Twitter will still be able to still be able to join me uh, here. So, um, all right, uh, I'm gonna. Uh, what am I gonna do? Oh yeah, I'm gonna do announcements and stuff. That's gonna be fun. Uh, getting my Twitch chat here together. Great, so I can see folks on Twitch as well as the folks on Discord. That's always good. All right, excellent. Um, so, um, we are, uh, uh, episode 97, getting to the part of Frodo's conversation with Gandalf, where Gandalf starts actually telling him stuff. Um, and so just as we're about to get to some sort of meteor sections of the text, right, we have like an explosion of really interesting stuff to talk about from the discussion boards. So, lest we get too far ahead of ourselves, we're going to make sure to go back a little bit here uh, uh, this morning. So, anyway, um, let's um, uh, let's let's go to some of these questions here. So, first, uh, this from Vranda, who has been catching up, which is great. Um, uh, Vranda asks, in reading Tolkien, there are so many pivotal points in his stories that I often find myself asking, what if? So my question is, what do you think the Witch King and the Nazgul would have done on Weathertop if Frodo had not given in and put on the ring? Could they still have attacked? Could the Witch King still have stabbed Frodo with the Morgul Blade? Or did he need Frodo's crossing into his Wraith world for him to make physical contact? Great question. Every time somebody... <laughs> somebody um uh raises a question um uh about weathertop that we haven't discussed i'm always like man i can't believe we didn't discuss that but it just goes to show right there's always more to talk about um this is an excellent question and uh and you're right jj no one has ever told what would have happened and so of course always the answer to questions like this is I don't know. Um, however, having said that, let's let's speculate. So, um, uh, first thing, the what we have to do right is put together the information, the actual information that we do have, right? Um, one, uh, and uh, there was a, some good discussion on the discussion board there as well. Um, uh, 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 some of which I, I definitely agree with. Um, first thing, first. The Witch King was... Uh, Frodo put on the ring because he was obeying the imperative command of the Witch King. Therefore, it's clear that the Witch King wouldn't have done that for no reason, right? Uh, so clearly, it, it, there must be some function served by Frodo putting on the ring, right? Now, it's a little bit less cl clear what that is. On the one hand, one of the phenomena this describes several... One of the phenomena described several times, right, is that 
when he puts on the ring, he becomes visible to them. They become visible to him. So, um, and I doubt it's something as mundane as like he can aim much better, right? He probably has a probably has like a negative five, you know four or negative six to hit. Uh, you know, if Frodo is not wearing the ring because he can't really see him clearly. I don't think that that's the reason uh, primarily. One of the comments, and I can't remember who made it. It was a little bit down in the thread. Um, the uh, uh, the 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 comment that I certainly agree with. Remember, again, remembering the whole spiritual element of this battle, which, you know, as we have seen, um, is, um, is, is, is really, um, central to this whole exchange. The fact that he has begun by submitting to the will of the Witch King is a bad sign no matter what, right? So, um, especially if we think about the Morgul blade, right, and the Morgul wound. Um, you know, the thing. One of the things that we've been saying, at least I've been saying since then, is that it seems that you know, I, I am convinced that the knife is not, um, you know, a, a, a blade that was meant to be detached. You know, like a, you know, a piece to break off. It was not a one-shot weapon. Um, the weapon, at least again, I don't believe that um, uh, that he dropped on purpose. I think that. Um, the, but the Morgul blade seems to be not merely a physical weapon, right? The way that we saw it dissolve uh, at the sunrise suggests that it was not just a, a, a mortal weapon, not just a, a physical knife. Um, and so, therefore, it seems to be an extension of his power, an extension of his will. And so his knife, uh, and remember the glowing, the pale light glowing around his hand, right? Um the manifestation of the knife, the wound, the, uh, the, 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 the remaining of his power, the, the, the remnant of his power that stays in the wound and stays in Frodo's body. Um, all of this seems to be about like the witch King exerting his will over Frodo. And, um, so to the extent that Frodo is, um, to the extent that Frodo is not is is submitting to the Witch King's will at first, at the very least, it seems like a warm up, right? Um, and so, one question that you know that of course I I can't answer, but that it leads me to ask along these same same lines is how would the progress of Frodo's wound have been different, right? Um, now, Tony uh, rightly reminds us, and I agree that. Um, uh, that uh, uh, and there was somebody else on the I forget who was on the discussion board who was mentioning this as well we know there are other examples of people being wounded by Morgul blades um, and dying afterwards um, uh, Boromir yeah not Boromir from the uh, Nine Walkers but the Boromir one of the Boromirs after whom he was named um uh, received a Morgul wound uh, and uh, and and dies afterwards. So we know that you don't have to be wearing the Ring of Power in order to be wounded uh, by the by a Morgul blade. Can't hurt though, right? I mean, I've got to think that he is he has come into their world. He has come into their world at the Witch King's bidding, right? Those things can't be good. That almost has to give them a kind of power over him, give him, the Witch King, a kind of power over Frodo that he would not otherwise have had. I have to think that, right? What does that exactly mean? 
Frodo bore the uh, the splinter for a really long time. Could he have borne it for even longer, right? Had he not been wearing the ring at the time, maybe? I don't really know. Would it not have affected him in the same way? Is the wraithification process that he is undergoing accelerated? Again, still his own endurance and his own strength held it off for a really long time. Would it have been even less? Th- I'm not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, again, we can't know these things for sure. But again... Clearly, he was doing it for a reason. One thing that I think is worthwhile to point out, and this might seem um, simple, but they don't know which... I mean, all hobbits look alike, right? Certainly, I suspect to Nazgul that's true. Um, They don't know which one is the ring bearer, right? Um, And on the one hand, this might seem like a, a, a sort of a simplistic suggestion, right? But... Um, those of you, especially those of you who studied The Return of the Shadow with me uh, in the Mythgard Academy will remember that a Frodo body double uh, as a decoy for the Ringwraiths, um, which was Fatty Bulger's uh, original job, by the way, um, uh, back in the earlier drafts, Gandalf takes him as a uh, takes him and rides with him towards Rivendell uh, uh, as a as a decoy. Um, and he's captured by the Ringwraiths as a decoy, uh, briefly. Um, anyway, uh, it's um, it's clear that it, it's in Tolkien's mind that the Ringwraiths don't know which hobbit has the ring. Um, Iwan Dillian asks, can't they sense the ring? We have to be careful with that. Um, they can sense the presence of the ring, yes, but it's not like they're not, it's not like a metal detector, right? Um... Uh, we have to remember that, um, you know, they're going to be fairly close to Frodo at other times as well and not be able to detect exactly where it is, right? Um, uh, so anyway, uh, it's... Um, uh, it's... Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Trifle. I'd forgotten the, the, the span there. Uh, uh, Trifle says that Boromir I lived for 12 years after his being stabbed by the Morgul weapon, but it stated that the wound shortened his life. So it affected him, but it clearly, we're not uh, talking about the rapid wraithification. Now, is it the same kind of weapon? Was it the same? We don't know that it was exactly the same circumstances, right? I don't think that we can necessarily use that as if it were, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, independent, uh, 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 you know, experimental trial, right, of the Morgul weapon under other circumstances. But still, that's interesting, Trifle, right, to to recall that that other wound um, was less immediately threatening, right, than Frodo's wound, Um but anyway, yeah, exactly. As Boomful was pointing out, um, they've uh, they've walked right past the ring before. Absolutely, they've been quite close to it. Um, you know, we can't forget that Sauron himself is going to be. I mean, he, you know, he's not within yards of it. But uh, um, Aragorn says that the ring draws them. Right. But that doesn't mean that they have this like sensor or, you know, like that we're supposed to imagine like, you know, wraith radar, uh, uh, wraith dar, I guess, you know, going out and, and, and pinging off the ring of power. 
They know that it's being carried by a hobbit. They know it's being carried by one of these hobbits, right? Based on the report that they got from Bill Fernie and the squint-eyed southerner, they, are, they can be certain that one of those hobbits that was there in Bree is carrying the ring, and they went off with Strider, right? So they know that it's one of these hobbits. They don't know which hobbit it is, right? So one effect that seems to me most absolutely clear, right? The sort of the most indisputable effect of Frodo's putting on the ring in the Dell under Weathertop is to single him out, right? That's the one, boys. That one right there. I know whom to stab with this knife now, right? Um, I, that I guess, it seems insufficient, right? I, or, or rather, um, that that doesn't seem to be like enough reason, right? Um, but then again, when I add the other, I'm not sure I'm not satisfied with it. That is, when I add the fact that he's also um, he's also simply exerting his will, right? Like, first let me warm you up by getting you into the pattern of submitting to my will, right? And then I'm going to proceed to the uh, domination of your will through this Morgul weapon that I'm holding in my hand, right? Um, so also as a kind of spiritual warm-up act to the act of, uh, of uh, 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 you know, coercion, spiritual coercion that he's about to inflict, it also seems certainly very appropriate in that way. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't... It's It seems pretty clear that there is not just this, like, objective ring sense. Um, a lot of people... Focus on that reference. I mean, again, it's it's uh, uh, you know Strider who talks about the ring drawing them right, um, and a lot of people really sort of fixate on that line again, as if you know the ring wraiths can smell it or something like that. You know, like they they can always sense when they're really close to it. That's obviously not true. Um, we see them. We'll, we will see them get close to it many times and not sense it. Right? We already have seen it several times. Um, Anyhow, um, so um, great question, Veranda. Glad you raised that. I'm not sure if I totally satisfactorily answered that, but I think it is a really interesting thing to uh, uh, to to think about. All right, moving on, moving on to the second most popular thing to ask questions about <laughs> Riven or uh, Weathertop still being number one. Uh, the Ford now being a strong number two. Um, uh, Ali, though, great uh, question here. says, I just listened to episode 92. He's nearly caught up. And I have an, alter an alternate exp explanation for Frodo's sudden burst of energy and defiance where he calls on Luthien and Elbereth. This occurs directly after the Nazgul chant, The Ring, The Ring. Could Frodo's response be driven by protectiveness of the ring? I mean protectiveness born from the instinctive, unhealthy obsession the ring causes, and which is seen many times throughout the story. Certainly in other places, specifically in the journey through Mordor, it is clearly shown that a threat to Frodo's possession of the ring will push him into action, even when he is near death. This is not as pleasant an explanation as the inspiration one, but plausible in my eyes. Um, great question. Uh, and I think that's a, it's a really important thing to remember. Um, Ali is certainly correct that this kind of thing happens a lot, especially in that last sequence, especially from like the, the tower of Kirithungal onwards, right? Uh, through, through Mount Doom. Um, if there is any immediate imminent threat, if somebody's trying to take the ring away or appears to be grabbing or even 
talking about, right, uh, the ring, um, Frodo is is stirred up to protectiveness. Um, but for Thoughtless, that's exactly my answer to the question. I'm thinking exactly the same thing you are. I don't think ring greed would push one towards an invocation of Elbereth. That's that's just where I am here, too. I, I do agree that, that this is a legitimate phenomenon, right? This is a thing that definitely happens. But I don't think... Um, I don't think that this is a manifestation of it for exactly that reason. Because if um, if you think about all the times that Frodo does that in The Return of the King, right? There are two things that are always associated with it. One is, again, that possessiveness. Mine! Mine! You know, it's mine! You can't have it! And be gone! Be off! Right? Um, it's mine! Get away! are the two things. And remember, we've already seen that. The desire to claim it for oneself, of course, Bilbo was already showing that very strongly. And the desire to push others away and separate themselves. Remember in Frodo, we've already begun to see that in the, like, mysterious I'm headed for the door of Tom Bombadil's house sequence, right? Uh, and even in a sense, though in a different sense, in the I'm going to escape the barrow and yeah, it'll be just me and that'll be kind of sad and stuff, but at least I'll be alive, right? I'm going to leave my friends behind. Anyway, so that separate myself and keep the ring for myself, those two impulses are definitely, have already been associated by this time in the book, um, have already been associated with the influence of the ring over its wielder, right? But Frodo at the Ford doesn't explicitly um, show any of those, either of those things, right? Um, he is not, um, uh, his response doesn't manifest possessiveness. Instead, he invokes Elbereth and Luthien, and that seems to me, just like it does to Fourth Dauntless, um, seem to run counter to uh, the direction that the ring pushes people. But this is a, an important thing to keep in mind. The other, the other question that I have is, I wonder if at this point yet, Frodo is quite that far along, right? Uh, when that manifests itself the way that, like when he says to Sam to be off, right? Um, when Sam suggests that, uh, 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 that he might, you know, Frodo might let him carry it for a while to, to, um, you know, Sam as, asks, knowing that it, will probably do more harm than good, but he can't forbear to, to, to suggest it. Right. Um, when we see Frodo acting like that, when he's, 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 he's on the edge, right. He's almost, he's almost over the edge, uh, there and completely in the ring's power here. He's still far away from that geographically far from that, but also far from that in his journey and his relationship with the ring. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he would, necessarily get there yet that by itself would not be a strong enough argument if he didn't invoke Elberth and luthien um uh that wouldn't be a strong enough argument for me to counter this but i think Elberth and luthien do point me into that direction um it's an interesting way to think about it tony his response is outward driven unlike when he becomes possessive which is inward driven uh yeah yeah, and Tony, I agree. Later he will do similar things with the name of Galadriel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see what we'll see when we see things like this again. It's certainly Ali a great thing to be reminded of, uh, even at this early stage in the story. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, and JJ, I agree. Just because he's almost wraithified doesn't mean so. Like spiritually, where Frodo is at this moment, like at the moment of the Ford, right? He's. I mean, he's this close to the wraith world, right? I mean, talk about being close to the edge, right? He's very close to the edge um, of losing himself completely. Um, so there, there is in that sense, you could argue a close parallel between where Frodo is right now at the Ford and where Frodo is going to be on the slopes of Mount Doom, right? In both cases, he's very close to the precipice. He's barely, there's barely any of him, his own mind left, right? His own, um, his own perceptions, his own will. But it is very different, right? Um, I think that it's, um, uh, what is happening to him, the kind of spiritual state that he is in here, where the world is gray around him, he is separated from his friends, right? Like he can't even see them anymore. Um, but he's, he's not, his own will is not compromised in the same way. He's not been corrupted in the same way that he's going to be later on. Um, uh, but again, I think it's a parallel that's going to bear looking at as we get there in The Return of the King. Um, in both, The thing that they both have in common, I would say, is that his own life, his own soul, right? His own will is being just overwhelmed. Um, he's being borne down by the strength of the opposition, right? Um there's a sense, I think, in which Frodo isn't being corrupted exactly. He's not being... Um, one way to think about the corruption of the will, right, is to, you know, as like, by, by a kind of moral seduction, right, that is to draw someone into making wrong decisions, right? Choosing in a small way at first, repeatedly, right? Then they get used to choosing the bad direction, right? In small ways. And then those choices get bigger and bigger, right? Like a decline down into debauchery or a decline down into drug addiction or something like that, right? That's not what happens to Frodo. Frodo is not being corrupted in that sense. His choices are not involved, Right? His choices are not bad, worse, increasingly bad, more and more conditioned, more and more inured to the bad choices that he's making until he's thoroughly corrupt and, you know, cackling maniacally and biting the heads off of puppies. Right, That's not the kind of corruption that Frodo is undergoing. He is being overpowered. Right, His choices, right up until the end right? His choices, every choice he makes is good. Like every moment of every day, he is resisting the ring, resisting the ring, resisting the ring, right? Every moral choice Frodo makes is a good moral choice. Um, so he's, what's happening to Frodo is like the opposite of what you could think of as a moral or spiritual corruption. So even using the word corruption, I'm not really sure about, um, um, I'm not really sure about the application of that word exactly. What is happening is he's being worn down, oppressed. Tony, that's a good word, I think. Um, he is being oppressed. Um, uh, yeah, 
help help he's being oppressed that's pretty much it um dominated yeah sure sure um but um anyway there's clearly a difference between where he is spiritually there in mordor and where he is spiritually here that'll be something that will be interesting to watch of course his decline here during the course of that chapter of the flight of the ford chapter is comparatively rapid right so we will get to see it in much more um uh in much in much more detail right in much more gradual stages on his tra- you know basically through all of you know book four and six right as he you know from the time he is headed towards uh you know from 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 the from the time he departs the fellowship all the way up through um mount doom we'll see that gradually happening um but um yeah yeah um yeah and matt i agree even the way that his the his vision is impaired, right? That where he can't see the world around him. We will see that again, certainly, in Mordor. Not exactly the same, right? It will not just be gray shadows that he will see. Um, yeah. Uh, Karita, that's really interesting. Karita says, I like consumed better than corrupted. He's being eaten away, um, not putrefied. Yeah, yeah, consumed. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the ring is eating him away uh, so that, like, by the time he gets to Mount Doom, he's something more like a shell. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. Anyway, but, as I say, great point, Ali. Glad that you raised this uh, because that's uh, uh, good to be thinking about. Last question, this from Nathan uh, Dessenville, who just caught up with us, which is great. Congratulations, Nathan. How meaningful would the revelation of Aragorn's ancestry be to the original reading audience? For that matter, how much would the hobbits, beside Frodo, know of the lore of the Northern Kingdom and Numenor? Okay, now, before I answer this question, which is going to lead us into our first slide, I've just remembered that I've forgotten to do announcements, so let me do quick announcements before I utterly forget. Um, Just a a couple quick announcements tonight. Uh, Don't forget that Nadermoot, for those of you who are in our listening audience who are over in Europe or keen to pop over to Europe next weekend... Nadermoot is coming up soon. It is next Saturday, the 13th of April. We're going to be in Leiden in the Netherlands, and it's going to be great fun. The theme of the conference is translation. We're going to be looking, of course, a, a, a language-oriented uh, uh, set of discussions is, going to, is uh, uh, very appropriate, uh, of course. Uh, uh, for, uh, you know, Tolkien would have been really interested in this, right? So, Anyway, uh, hope that uh, that many folks will be able to make it uh, over to Nadermoot. Uh, and then, of course, Mythmoot, our big event, is coming in June. So we are getting closer and closer, don't forget, uh, to register for Mythmoot. Um, we also have the next Mythgard Movie Club is coming up on April 18th. Uh, so that is uh, this Thursday fortnight. So April 18th. Um, 
And they're going to be uh, discussing the, the film Captive State. So that is what is coming up this month on the Mythgard Movie Club. And finally, our registration at Signum is open for summer courses. So uh, uh, check out our website, signumuniversity.org. See what's coming up this coming sem- uh, uh, semester. Our new course this semester is uh, The Inklings and King Arthur. Uh, it's going to be a really fun class. So um, anyhow, those are the announcements that I almost but did not quite forget to give. So anyway, back to um, back to Nathan's question here. How meaningful would the revelation of Aragorn's ancestry be to the original reading audience, for that matter? How much would the hobbits beside Frodo know of the lore of the Northern Kingdom and Numenor? Nathan, really glad you asked this question. I uh, think it's, it's not like we must always be thinking of this. Um, it's perfectly fine for us to know you know, not only the Lord of the Rings well, but the entire story, uh, you know, and, and, and so, you know, have had access for decades now to all of these other works of Tolkien's. It's perfectly fine for us to be thinking about them in the context of all this other stuff that we know, right? Um, but there are two things that I think it is, I like to do when we are reading the story. I think it's important for us not to completely lose sight of. Um, one, which is, I think, even more, is most important, is to not lose sight of the story as it has been revealed by this time. That is, of course, it is wonderful to think about the stuff that's happening in the story in the light of what we learn later on, right? So when we're coming and rereading the story, to think to be connecting the beginning with the end and the middle, right? That's all, that's all perfectly valid and very interesting. But it's also important for us to keep in mind the growth of the story itself, um, to think first, I try to think first about what do we know at this point, right? Um, so thinking, for instance, about the conversation between Frodo and Gandalf that we were looking at last week when Gandalf talks about being held captive, it's easy for us, as soon as he starts talking about I was held captive, to be thinking about Saruman and asking questions about Saruman and stuff, but I think it's good for us to remember, remember technically we don't know anything about Saruman yet, right? We've heard the name, but we certainly don't know that he had anything to do with Gandalf's disappearance, right? Uh, and capture. So it's important for us to remember what the story, you know, what information the story has in fact given to us. Of secondary, but I still think significant importance is, is and because if we don't think about this, then sometimes I think we can really overlook things or make assumptions, which can kind of conceal some things from us, which are really interesting to notice. And that is, Nathan, the thing that you are pointing at here in your question, which is not just what has been revealed in the story at this time, but what would an original reader have been able to make, given the resources that the original audience of the Fellowship of the Ring had, what is the impact of this passage, right? Um, that is, you not only that you do not know the rest of the story, but of course you don't know the Silmarillion or indeed anything other than the published Hobbit, right? You know the published Hobbit and you know this book so far. You don't even have like all of the prefatory material yet, right? Um, you just have this story. So um, that's important for us to remember, I think, um, and a good question to be asking occasionally. So um, how meaningful would the revelation of Aragorn's ancestry be to the original reading audience? Nathan, let us keep that question in mind as we 
come to the passage in question. Remember, Frodo has just been saying about how they don't know much about men in the Shire, except possibly, you know, they don't know much about the big people, except maybe the Brelanders, right? And how he never thought he'd meet anybody like Aragorn or anybody like Strider. He just thought that men were were big and kind of stupid, right? And we talked about that last time. Um, Gandalf's reply, which we didn't get to, you don't know much even about them, that is, about the Brelanders. If you think old Barlamin is stupid, said Gandalf, he is wise enough on his own ground. He thinks less than he talks, and slower, yet he can see through a brick wall in time, as they say in Bree. But there are few left in Middle-earth like Aragorn, son of Arathorn. The race of the kings from over the sea is nearly at an end. It may be that this War of the Ring will be their last adventure. Do you really mean that Strider is one of the people of the old kings? said Frodo in wonder. I thought they had all vanished long ago. I thought he was only a ranger. Only a ranger? cried Gandalf. My dear Frodo, that is just what the rangers are. The last remnant in the north of the great people, the men of the west. They have helped me before, and I shall need their help in the days to come, for we have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest. I suppose not, said Frodo, but so far my only thought has been to get here, and I hope I shan't have to go any further. It is very pleasant just to rest. I have had a month of exile and adventure, and I find that has been as much as I want. Okay. Um, so... First thing to notice. First thing to notice in response to Nathan's question. How much would the original reading audience have known of the lore of the Northern Kingdom and Numenor? Notice what is actually said in this passage. What precisely is revealed about Aragorn's heritage. Right now, since we're good Tolkien scholars, right, we know what these things mean. Gandalf can say something like, the race of the kings from over the sea is nearly at an end, and we know just what he's talking about, right? Ah, Numenor, Akalabeth, the downfallen, right? Got it. Um, so this means that the rangers are the last remnant in the north of the Numenorean kingdom, right? So the, when the kingdom of Arnor fell, right, these are the, we, we all, you know, we know the story. So we know what he means, and we tend to translate it in those terms, right? Gandalf doesn't use any of those terms, though. Notice that Gandalf doesn't say anything. Um, so, Nathan, one of my primary points about this passage, and in response to your question, would be, the reader wouldn't have to know anything at all, nothing at all about Numenor, which is one reason why the word Numenor is never used. What do they need to know of the history of the North Kingdom? Absolutely nothing. The North Kingdom is never alluded to, right? Just that in the North, there is a remnant of the great people, right? Um... Look at the way that he describes them, right? There are three descriptors, right, that Gandalf uses. Three ways in which Gandalf characterizes 
the people group from which Aragorn comes, right? The race of the kings from over the sea is the first one. Um, the, uh, the great people is the second one. And the men of the West immediately after is the third one, right? That's it. The race of the kings from over the sea, the great people, the men of the West. I would also point out the order in which those things are said here, right? Um, if you started out, if you started out with the men of the West, you know, the race of the men of the West is nearly at an end. There might be perhaps some confusion, right? West of what? Like west of the Shire, right? Out, out towards the coast, um, west of Bree, west of what exactly, right? That is simply saying men of the West doesn't even convey across an ocean, right? Um, it merely, now I'm not saying that Frodo wouldn't get it. Frodo would get it because Frodo is used to hearing the word West with a capital W, right? We've talked about the capital letters with the directions. When somebody talks about the West, right? Frodo knows what is meant by the West, right? Over the sea. Towards Elvenholm, over the sea to the West is, is where all of these things come from, right? Numenor, Elvenholm, Valinor. But readers wouldn't know that. Right, you can't assume that readers would know that. Um, so Gandalf doesn't lead with that. Tolkien doesn't have Gandalf lead with that. The race of the kings from over the sea is that's a big deal, right? By itself, were we told nothing at all else about that, that would be enough, right? The race of the kings from over the sea. That is, yes, it does make you think of something like Atlantis. Belongsmond, it does sound legendary. That is mythic right there. And in particular, it's not just that it sounds generally legendary and mythic, though I agree, it certainly does. This is appealing to, a, Tolkien is here appealing to particular kinds of um, of myths here. Tolkien was very interested in stories uh, like the he wrote about this in the poem that he wrote called King Horn, um, which is essentially a sort of quasi-Numenorean poem, but um, the... Well, it's complicated, but like basically legends of mysterious people arriving in ships, right, on the coasts of, uh, uh, you know, the Germanic lands, uh, uh, you know, in the north and England and, and Scandinavia and, uh, uh, you know, northern Germany and Denmark and stuff, um, where they... Um, you know, like these strange people arrive and who are receiving, you know, this whole, the, the legend of shield chafing, um, uh, you know, the idea that there's this, there's this, uh, you know, orphan who arrives, but is, you know, uh, this sort of marvelous figure and who rises to become king. Um, that's sort of the story in King Horn as well. Um, anyway, this was a mythic idea that there were kings from over the sea and sometimes 
by accident, maybe intentionally, perhaps they come among us, right? Um, and accomplish great things and become great heroes of legend. Um, it is not unlike, you know, the stories of like your occasional demigod uh, in Greco-Roman tradition, right? People like Theseus and Heracles and stuff like that. Um, but anyhow, um, so um, uh, the race of the kings from over the sea. Notice the pluralization of kings there gives you the sense that like everyone in that race are kings, right? Compa like when those people from over the sea land on these shores and come among us, they are as kings among us, right? Again, th this sense is generated. Um, but there are few left in Middle-earth like Aragorn, son of Arathorn, is Gandalf's transition into this, right? Aragorn, you're right to observe Frodo, that he's not... You, you're, you're kind of ignorant about big people in general, but you're absolutely right to say, you know, no blame to you that you didn't, um, that you didn't understand what, uh, uh, you didn't expect to meet somebody like Aragorn, right? Because there are very few people like that. Um, so, yeah, the race of the kings from over the sea don't need to know anything about their story for that to really hit you, for that to really fire your imagination and convey that sense of he is from something else, you know, something different, um, something greater, right? Um, he is a legendary, a mythic figure. And then look at the, the great people points to that same thing again that idea of like they walk among us as giants right that whole that whole thing um the great people the men of the west now when he says men of the west capital m capital w there is no question we're not talking about the west farthing here we're not talking about just to the west of the west farthing here we are talking about west over the sea right from the far lands and of course to frodo um uh frodo clearly has, and we already have, I think, some reason uh, to associate the West with fairly remarkable things, right? With elves and elf magic and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and other things. Um, anyway, um, yeah. So good. there are other scattered references. Frumius Bujum, I agree that we have, you know, Tom Bombadil references them, absolutely. Um, but, um, but I do think that, again, my point is you don't have to be tracking all of those things, right? And those things are easier to track when you already know, right? When you know about the story of Numenor and you know the story of the Arnorian kingdoms and stuff, it's easier to track all that stuff, right? Um, what we get when we go through when you, you know, when you think about it from, you know, I'm sitting, it's 1954, I'm sitting and reading The Fellowship of the Ring, um, what you get are these mythic moments, right? Um, this sense that there is something kind of awe-inspiring awe and really special, right, about Aragorn and about these, these people. Um, 
And um, yeah, Lalith, I think that that's, um, that's important, right? It's intended as a shift in our perspective and Frodo's of men until now all we've known is the stip- stupid or wicked people. Yeah, sure, exactly. I mean, exactly the contrast that Frodo was drawing up for us, that's perfectly appropriate for us, right? The only humans we've met are the Brelanders. And in Bree, we had two primary people, right? We had two central people, Barlam and Butterbur and Bill Fernie, right? And neither one of them really evoked a, a great, you know, mythic, uh, 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 impressive stature, right? Um, yeah. And Mike, you're absolutely right. We do need to remember, and someone else was referring to this earlier. Uh, it might have been you, actually, Mike. Um, the We do also have the poem about Strider, right? The poem which wasn't explained and which contains lots of mythic ideas, right? Um, we Lots of mythic associations with Strider identifying him, right? All that good, you know, uh, uh, not all... Uh, 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 um, the, 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 the glittering gold references, right? The whole thing, the, the crownless again shall be king. Um, a very, a mythic concept there as well, right? Um, and Lalith, you're right, more explanation of that poem is coming in this chapter. We're not supposed to be able to figure it out, right? We shouldn't be able to parse it line by line when we first, again, in 1954, we're sitting there reading The Fellowship of the Ring. We wouldn't be able to parse that, that poem, Right, but it still should affect our imaginations in some ways. And when Strider says that poem means me, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. Um, Rococo, I agree. Um, she asks, uh, although would an original reader have caught on that Gandalf himself isn't a human? It took you years to realize that. Well, Rococo, it takes. Marion Pippin years to realize that too, in a sense, right? Um, Gandalf is always in a, a weird kind of situation. I, I think, as testified by the fact, uh, testified to by the fact that uh, Frodo himself doesn't. And we were talking about this last time, right? Um, you know, when Frodo says we don't know much about big people except maybe the Brelanders, he doesn't say, "Well, I mean, and you, obviously, you're the only big p- person we know." In fact, Rococo what he says almost implies the opposite of that, right? I mean, surely, if he was going to start a catalog, if he thought of Gandalf as one of the big people, right, and he was going to start a catalog of, okay, let me review what we, hobbits in general, and I, Frodo in particular, know about the big people, he would start with Gandalf, right? And so, far from surprising him, Aragorn the fact that Aragorn reminded him of Gandalf would seem like if Gandalf is establishing the norm for Frodo and hobbits in general, then Aragorn is the one who would surprise him least, right? Butterbur and Bill Fernie would be the ones that surprised him. He'd be like, oh, I thought all big people were, you know, wise and, and, and shrewd and fun-loving and, 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 and blew awesome smoke rings like Gandalf and had amazing eyebrows, right? That, that, would, that would set his standard for the big people, and then he'd meet Butterbur and Bill Fernie and be like, what the heck, right? But that's not how he describes it. So when it, with his saying, I was pretty much assuming that, you know, Butterbur and Bill Fernie were the, were the norm, Right, and the fact that Strider reminded me, uh, you know, me of you, uh, was shocking. Right, that by itself clearly suggests he does not 
assume that Gandalf is one of the big people, but it's not like that's explicitly stated, right? Um, so Frodo doesn't seem to make that association, but what is he then exactly, other than just a general exception to the rules? Um, it's unclear, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, Lincoln says he always uh, figured Frodo holds uh, uh, wizards to be a different class of big people, unlike normal humans. Possibly. Possibly. I mean, that's one way to understand how he's different. Um, But, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, And, Tony, I agree with you, coming back to the Numenor stuff, coming back to the the, the kings from over the sea here. um, It is a part of the illusion of depth that Tolkien is really good at, leaving lots of unexplained threads and references to let you know that there's more to the world than you can see in the novel. Um, And also enabling you to put together references. Um, There's a lot... I mean, several of you were talking about references in the prologue uh, to... um, to Numenor and stuff, right? Yeah, the concerning Hobbit stuff in the in the prologue. Sure, there are references there. But again, I would challenge you to go back and read those again. How explicable are those, right? I mean, it says, for instance, that Hobbit architecture doubtless derives from the Dunedain who learned it from the elves. How helpful is that? Who the heck are the Dunedain, right? Um, what does that reveal exactly? Right. Um, again, it makes perfect sense to us, like it gives away everything, except it doesn't, only if you know that name. Um, again, if you're reading that, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't think, I can't remember, I can't remember what all was included in the very first edition. I know that preface was added after the second edition. Um, I know a bunch of the material in the Concerning Hobbit section at the beginning was also stuff he was thinking of putting in the appendices, so I can't remember if it didn't come out until the second edition or not, but it doesn't even matter. I mean, whether you're reading the second edition with all that stuff there as well, um, uh, there's still a lot of time between when you have the Fellowship of the Ring there, the entire Fellowship of the Ring, and when you get, you know, the Silmarillion and sort of the fuller version of the story. Um, anyway. Yeah, interesting. Tora Marthen, uh points out that uh, in his own past conversations with Frodo, Gandalf may have referred to men as something separate from himself, and Frodo's possibly picked that up, that is, using words like they instead of we. Um, yes. I think he does do that, but he doesn't talk about... I'd have to look at that, Toramarthen. Does Gandalf utter sentences where he is using a pronoun like they for which the antecedent is men as a race? I'm not sure if that happens or not. It might. And I could see Gandalf saying that, but um, uh, but I'm not positive that that exact situation comes up um anyway um good and but i i agree somebody was pointing out again lost it it flowed past me there but um uh we do know that the elves are sailing into the west there have been references uh to that and so again that alone associates 
gives us an association for the West. So once we get kings from over the sea and then men of the West, now we're we're not only just thinking of this these larger than life mythic figures, but we're now making some other more particular associations, right? Um Yeah. So anyway, I, I think this is uh pretty cool. Pretty cool to notice how Tolkien does this. He is really good at invoking this kind of mythic thing, right? Um, this mythic atmosphere. And just as a side note, this is one of the things that I f- have always felt and have been saying since pretty much since the day <laughs> the first film came out. One of the things that I was always that I was most disappointed by by Peter Jackson's film, and I understand the rationale, and goodness knows the Lord of the Rings films were wonderful, wonderful movies, but I was always sorry that he never attempted this, that in fact he went the opposite direction from this. Tolkien does such a wonderful job of invoking wonder and mythic legendary stature of the characters in the story, right? I mean, come on. After, when you see Strider again... Pay attention to when we see Strider again, right? After this introduction, right? Um, even Frodo's response, do you really mean that Strider is one of the people of the old kings, right? One of the people of the old kings. Now, it's not only, right, uh, the, you know, and again, going back also to Gandalf's words, it's not just the legendary thing, you know, kings from over the sea. But Gandalf has said the race of the kings from over the sea is nearly at an end, Right? That one of the people of the old kings, I thought they had all vanished long ago, right? So, wow. So it's not just that he's one of them, right? But they, they themselves are from the legendary past, right? There used to be kings from over the sea among us here in Middle-earth, right? But I thought they were all gone. There's still some here? And Strider's one of them? Whoa, right? Um, and again, so Peter Jackson goes in the absolutely opposite direction from that, right? And and uh, 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 steadfastly refuses to allow Strider, you know, to be a larger-than-life figure. Um, it's, in my opinion, the number one thing that he didn't... Well, I don't even can't say that they didn't get it. I think they got it, they just didn't like it. Um, didn't think it would work uh, on film. With which I just agree to disagree with uh, 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 with uh, Jackson, Walsh, and Boyens, but um, I don't think that viewers of films have to be able to relate personally to every character. Um, the 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 way that it works in Tolkien's world, you can relate to the hobbits if you want to relate to the hobbits, and with that, you stand next to the hobbits who are on your level, and you look up at the big people, right? You look up at Gandalf, and you look up at Aragorn, and you say, wow, right? Um, and when you don't get that effect, right? When you're not, lo- when you're looking at Aragorn, and you're saying, oh man, he's just like me, right? I totally feel you, Aragorn. You're not gaining something, you're losing something. Something really significant. Um, anyway, um, and I agree, Ambrosius Aurelianus. I do think that Viggo Mortensen could totally have pulled off a more mythic Aragorn. Um, again, it's it's not just that I disagree with him that that makes a better story. I think it demonstrably makes a worse story. But I think I I, I don't think 
Well, but it's hardly like they're alone uh, in Hollywood uh, or, you know, whatever, in modern filmmaking uh, to believe that that's not a thing that will fly in films. But um, Veronica, you're so completely correct, right? Uh, the the fact that superhero movies are so common, uh, uh, so popular, certainly does suggest that larger-than-life figures are maybe something that people are a little bit interested in after all, right? But, yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah. Now, Matt, thank you for repeating that. I briefly saw that go past, and and uh, um, and uh, and I didn't get to talk about it, but I'm glad you brought it back up again because Matt's very right that the word adventure is fascinating here. Gandalf's use of it, right? The race of the kings from over the sea is nearly at an end. It may be that this War of the Ring will be their last adventure, right? What a fascinating um, story. Right, will be their last adventure. Um, first of all, think about the way in which that contextualizes the race of the kings from over the sea. Right. So, if this is their last adventure, they had lots of other adventures previously. Right. Um, this is just the last in a long series of adventures. Is that the, what they were here for? Right. So, the kings from over the sea have come, and they have been having adventures here in. Um, uh, here in in Middle Earth, right? And yeah, it is the same word used to refer to Bilbo's journey in the Hobbit. Dior, you're completely right. Um, just like, but remember, Dior, it was first Gandalf's word, right? Um, he's looking for someone uh, to. Uh, 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 you know, he, he's looking someone for for an adventure that he's arranging, right? Uh, Gandalf is. Is that the kind of adventure? Right, that um, uh, that G- Gandalf is talking about here. Right, um, their last undertaking. Right, their last uncertain but heroic undertaking. Right, like seems to be more or less what Gandalf seems to mean when he talks about organizing an adventure. Right, um, I don't know, but one of the things. One of the, the two things that the word adventure convey to me here is that uh, in, in, in this context is one that the race of the kings from over the sea had a purpose, right? That is that they're not just here, they're not just wandering around, right? Um, they have a quantifiable, they've had a quantifiable number of adventures. Uh, and again, I'm thinking here, I, I think I am being influenced by the way in which it's used, especially by Gandalf in The Hobbit, right? Um, it's not just, it's not an adventure in the, um, I think it's not necessarily an adventure in sort of the more, uh, the more Arthurian sense, like the more, uh, the more, the more uh, uh, Mallory sense of, uh, like he's off on adventures, meaning like he doesn't really know it. He's just wandering around and seeing what interesting things happen, right? Um, uh, exactly. Not errantry, but a quest, Mad Violinist. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, and then, but the other thing, so the one thing is that, again, there's, there's a purpose. They have come here to, to, a, to, to undertake adventures, right? Um, but the other thing is the uncertainty of it. Right, an adventure means you don't know what's going to happen, 
right? Otherwise, it would just be a venture, right? If it's an adventure, you, you don't know how it's going to turn out. This is why it freaks Bilbo out when Gandalf mentions them, right, in The Hobbit, because he does not like that kind of thing. Um, it's a quest, but it's a quest which, they, you know, who knows exactly how it's going to come out. Um, and that that concept of, like, daring an uncertain quest, possibly, probably, heroic, undertaken by the race of the kings from over the sea, um, t- it, to me, kind of ratchets up the, uh, the, the, the mythic stature, right, of these kings from over the sea. They didn't just wander among us to rule us or something, right, which kings might perhaps suggest. Um, they came here to to do things, right? To champion things, to accomplish things, to undertake quests and uh, perform heroic feats. And those are almost done. And this is... So first, this thing that is happening right now is, uh, is one of them. And it's not just one of them, it's their last. Yes, exactly, Tony, that's a big deal. Right, Gandalf is implying that it's the end of their time and 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 of their world. Um, the way in which, in those two sentences, Gandalf conveys the sense of the old world is passing away. We've gotten impulses of that all the way back, from, you know, from Sam in the Green Dragon, right? Thinking about the elves, the elves, the elves. Probably thinking about ale too. Thinking about the elves sailing, sailing away, right? Um, sailing away and leaving us. Sam seems to have that sense of like, you know, an era is passing, right? This is, this is, this is the end of an age. Um, and, um, this is another way in which it's the end of an age. And again, Frodo's response shows that he has that. I thought they had all vanished long ago. I thought that era was already done. We are still... Remember Bilbo's reflection when he sees his sword glowing for the first time in Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, and he thinks that it's quite splendid to have himself a a, a sword that was wrought in Gondolin, right? A connection between his own modern-day, you know, comparatively mundane world with those legendary mythic stories that he has heard about, right? He knows the stories of ancient Gondolin, that ancient great city of the elves that was lost and destroyed ages ago, but now he has a personal connection to it, right? Similarly here, Frodo is discovering that that story, that those legends, which he thought were done, right? That those old people, those the race of the kings from over the sea, the great people, they, they had all vanished long ago. They've not vanished, right? And I've met one, right? And I am in their story, right? This is one of their adventures. This is their last adventure, and I'm a part of it. Um, yeah, it's... Um, uh, um, I think it's... Um, <laughs> Rococo says she's going to be an elf <laughs> for Halloween. <laughs> it sounds good. Sounds like a good costume. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we need pictures. But yes, good. Mad Violinist, it's a great way to think about it. The Age of Heroes is coming to an end, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, this seems to me... These elements, these things that we're kind of teasing out here from these from these paragraphs, 
this seems to me far more important than the comparatively prosaic history of Numenor and Arnor, right? Uh, and this is why I think it's really good for us to kind of refresh our perspective occasionally when we come to some of these passages. If we see the race of kings from over the sea and in our head, just translate that to, right? The, okay, yeah, Numenorians, right? Um, so we just, if, if, if what goes to our brain is the race of the Numenorians is nearly at an end, right? Do you mean that Strider is one of the people of Arnor, right? It's not that that's inaccurate, right? But we've lost something, uh, if that's what we hear when we read this. Um, so, good to refresh our perspective on that occasionally. Um, look at what Gandalf goes on to say there. They have helped me before, and I shall need their help in the days to come, for we have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest. Notice another thing, which... Um, another thread which runs through all of this and is has been explicitly by Gandalf connected with this mythic stuff right the just as these statements have established as i was saying the connection between frodo and his you know mundane modern world and these ancient legends and stories and old adventures um gandalf twice connects it with the ring with this undertaking which Frodo has already undertaken, right? Which he's taken upon himself. Um, this War of the Ring, that's an interesting phrase, right? It's a fascinating phrase. War of the Ring, that's the first time we've ever heard about that, right? Now, you ask Luke, and I'm glad to say Luke is one of the people who usually joins me on Twitter. Glad you, uh, you came, were able to come through here. Um, yes, uh, we do know uh, uh, the, the scarcity of heroes uh, of, available from back in The Hobbit, right? Yes, that sense of, you know, the age of heroes um, uh, dwindling, right? Things, that, 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 that is such a a characteristic Tolkien concept, right? The idea that the the elder days are passing, that um, the old times of heroes and adventures are are are, are fading and 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 going away. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, this War of the Ring. It may be that this War of the Ring will be their last adventure. Um, notice. You gotta think if Frodo's—I mean, Frodo's already doing a double take, right? As his own concept of who and what Strider is—that Strider, uh, you know, this guy of whom he's not technically fond, right? Though who has become dear to him, um, finding that he is one of these figures walking out of the old legends, right? Um, but um, notice, by the way, nothing. Nothing whatsoever, absolutely nothing has been said of Strider's specific position. No hint that he's an heir to the throne, right? No hint at that. He's one of the people of the old kings. They're all kings, right? Those kingly folks, um, those larger-than-life figures. Um, the idea that that Aragorn will be king one, you know, could be king one day if everything pans out, is not alluded to explicitly in this passage. Um, and could notice 
that's clearly what Frodo is getting. Is he one of the people of the old kings? Oh, like he is of that race. Wow. Um, but Stephanie, exactly. It's like he's like, wait, who said anything about a war? Why I, I, war? Um, I was ready for hopeless quest, right? I was ready for permanent exile. War for real, right? Gandalf is 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 um, broaching that, right? Now, Belongsman, you're absolutely right. In, in in Bilbo's poem, right, in the All That Is Gold Does Not Glitter uh, poem, we do get hints to that. The crownless again shall be king, right? Um, but again, it's not been explained. We don't, and we would could be forgiven if we don't retain every line of that poem in our memories at this particular moment, right? Um, but I, I just mean in this passage, right? When the reveal is being made, that's not what's being revealed. What's being revealed is merely that he is one of the people of the old kings, that he is one of the great people. He is a survivor into the modern age of these legendary mythic people. Um, anyway, so it may be that this War of the Ring will be their last adventure, and then... For we have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest, right? They have helped me before, and I shall need their help in days to come. For we have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest. Um, they, uh, um, keeping the ring safe and bringing it to Rivendell was what he, Frodo, agreed to do, right? Um, now, Gandalf is expanding. He had raised the possibility, like, maybe the ring is going to need to go to Mount Doom. Maybe that will be your task, but that task may be for others, right? Um, but um, he is, I think, I, I suspect deliberately inviting Frodo to change the way that he thinks about this adventure that he is on, right? His adventure... Um, is like Bilbo's adventure, except different, right? Um, his adventure is also the adventure, the last adventure of the race of the kings from over the sea. Um, it is such a big deal, right? Uh, bringing the ring to rest uh, is a big deal that he is going to be, he, Gandalf, is going to be recruiting the help of the great people, of the men of the West, of the survivors of the race of the kings from over the sea, right? We're going to have to call in them. Um, you and me, Frodo, we're going to, we're going to call in the ancient people, the ancient race of kings, right? Whoa, big deal, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and Zephaniah, I agree, the repetition is very interesting, and it seems to me to be Frodo's response, right? But the ring is not yet at rest, says Gandalf. I suppose not, said Frodo, but so far my only thought has been to get here, and I hope I shan't have... And I would place the stress on the pronoun, and I hope I shan't have to go any further. It is very pleasant just to rest. So, Zephaniah, I think that that's a response, right? The ring is not yet at rest. Maybe not... But I am. Look at me. I'm resting, right? And I'm liking this, actually. And it would be kind of... Uh, I've had a month of exile and adventure, and I find that has been as much as I want, he says, with understatement, right? I'm satisfied, right? I've had, I've had plenty of exile, right? I'm full now. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, 
he took upon himself what he thought at the time might be an open-ended exile, right? His desire for rest here, his holding out the possibility, right? His entertaining the hope that he will be able just to rest here, um, that his part in the adventure is done, that maybe a month of exile and adventure is enough adventure for him, and, and he's played his little part in, you know, reasonably significant part in the last adventure of the the kings from over the sea, um, that now he can be done, right? That's different from how he was talking in Bag End, but that was theory, right? Um, the actual adventure that he's had, the actual exile as he has experienced it, has been rather more intense, right? He was imagining himself going there but not back again, right? Setting out and probably never returning. Drawing danger after him, but he did not imagine it was going to be right behind him, galloping towards the ford, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Brunier, I'm not even sure... Was he thinking about exile to Rivendell? I mean, that would be pretty nice. Um, we know that Merry and Pippin, based on their song that they sing in Crick Hollow, we know that Merry and Pippin were still thinking of it as a there and back again journey, right? Off to Rivendell to deliver the ring and then back to the Shire. Obviously, that's what's going to happen, right? Um, that seems to be their assumption. Frodo is not assuming that. That's one of the reasons why he's so resistant to bringing anybody along with him, because he believes he's taking them into permanent exile. I don't think he was thinking at the time. When he's setting out, he's making for Rivendell. But, again, remember, the, his model is Bilbo's journey, and Rivendell was just a short rest, recall, right, along the way. Um, and that does seem to be how Frodo was thinking of it, um, was thinking of Rivendell at that time as well, right? Um, so I don't think that Frodo was imagining he was going to go to Rivendell and then spend the rest of his life there. If so, he probably wouldn't have been thinking about it so gloomily. Um, he's not going into retirement like Bilbo. He's not planning to move out and move into Rivendell. He thinks that Rivendell is going to be a stop along the way. What has changed his mind? Why is he now thinking about maybe I could be done now. And I think my answer is the experience that he's had over the last month, right? It was one way to talk like that. He can, you know, when he was talking about drawing danger after him, he didn't know what he was talking about, right? Um, it, there was nothing like, um, you know, the experience at, like, forget even the old forest and the Barrow Downs, right? Um, he was certainly not thinking about you know, the, uh, the, the, the frightening experiences that they had in Bree, like the break-in and, you know, that where like they would have been probably killed. Like if they had been in the beds, would they have been slashed up too? I mean, they've got to be thinking this, right? Um, the person, you know, the encounters with the riders, the attack, the stabbing, right? The near death experience. I mean, now he's like, okay, actually maybe, maybe, maybe I'm good. <laughs> Right. I've had a month of exile and adventure, and I find that it has been as much as I want. Um, maybe I think that this is as much... It's about his desire for rest, but I think it's also, to some extent, about his own... I don't know what... Um, 
I don't want to say it's about his own inadequacy. I don't want to make it just sound like Frodo is feeling insecure or something like that. But, um, I mean, is he really up for it? I mean, it was Strider that saved us, uh, agrees uh, Frodo. All the absurd things you have done since you left home, said Gandalf at the very beginning of this conversation, right? Um, I think Frodo was willing to take on the exile on himself, right? But he didn't know what was really going to be involved. And it seems that in addition to having had so many near-death and traumatic experiences that he would quite like to not have any more, I think in addition there is a sense of like, okay, I now have a clearer sense of how deeply underqualified I am for this role, right? Um, And Matt, I think you're absolutely right. Drawing danger away from the Shire is one thing. Having danger actually catch up to you is certainly something else. And that has definitely been um, Frodo's experience here. Um, and Luke, I, I certainly agree, and with Catriona as well, um, that um, the, the the his Baggins is showing right. He's he's had enough of adventures. Um, yeah, Belongsman, I think that's better. It's not about insecurities, but about reality setting in. Right? Yes. Um, it was all theoretical in his drawing room at Bag End. Right? Um, when he took this upon himself, it was completely theoretical. Now he knows what the reality is like. Um, and it's not clear that he can handle it, right? Um, I mean, he barely has escaped on many occasions. Um, so, you know, is he asking for an out? Yeah, kind of, I think, in part. Is he um, uh, hoping that a, that a, that a, you know, a, 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 a new better keeper will be found for the ring soon? Quite possibly. I think that Gandalf's first introduction of this widening scope of what's... You know, this War of the Ring will be their last adventure. A War of the Ring. So the Ring is... There's going to be a war about the Ring, and it's going to be the last adventure of the race of the kings from over the sea. Well, that sounds like that's above my pay grade. A couple times over. Right? Frodo could be excused for thinking. Right? Okay, so um, how about... How about I rest? I've done my bit, right? And that's probably, as, you know, honestly, yeah, like absurd, true enough. Um, you know, that I came this far is is uh, more than could realistically be expected. And um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Mad Violinist, I think I agree with you. Yeah, w- war wasn't in my contract, right? Yeah, exactly. Um Mad Violinus is right to say, he says, uh, he doesn't think Frodo has anything like the Tookish sense of adventure that Bilbo does. His is an adventure of duty, duty to the Shire and duty to the world at large. Now, Mad Violinus, I would recall that he does have that surge, right? He does have that where he imagines running out, chasing after Bilbo, um, you know, running down the path just like Bilbo did before him, right? So I think that there is a little bit of a desire for adventure in Frodo. But I agree, it is not the same as that. With Frodo, it's not as simple as the the, the, the Baggins and Tookish um, division within him, these two different uh, desires that are kind of at war. Frodo is in a totally different situation from the beginning. Uh, JJ, exactly as you say, he doesn't get to pick an, an adventure just to prove himself. Uh, as my violinist was saying, he's... Um, it's it's duty, 
right? He is protecting the Shire. He's doing what's right. He is undertaking a burden which he doesn't understand yet, right? Still doesn't understand it. Thinks that he does now, right? Now he thinks he knows what adventures are about, right? And what kinds of things uh, he's, uh, he's up to. But, um, yeah, yeah, good. Tony uh, reminds us that we've seen a similar kind of thing um, uh, with Frodo earlier when, when they get their swords from Tom Bombadil and, and like the hobbits hadn't realized that fighting would be something that they would have to do, right? Traveling. Traveling was what he signed up for, right? Um, fighting, yeah, and certainly not in a war, right? He's... he's um, did not sign up to be a hero, and he certainly hasn't signed up to be a soldier. Um, yeah, all very fair. Um, yeah, let's um, let's keep going. One more slide. We can do two tonight. Uh, yeah, good, my mad violinist. Sam didn't sign up to be a uh, to be a, a jester or a warrior or a wizard either. Yeah, um, he fell silent and shut his eyes. After a while, he spoke again. I have been reckoning, he said, and I can't bring the total up to October the twenty fourth. It ought to be the twenty first. We must have reached the ford by the twentieth. You have talked and reckoned more than is good for you," said Gandalf. "How do the side and shoulder feel now?" I don't know, Frodo answered. They don't feel at all, which is an improvement, but he made an effort. I can move my arm again a little. Yes, it's coming back to life. It's not cold, he added, touching his left hand with his right. Good, said Gandalf. It is mending fast. You will soon be sound again. Elrond has cured you. He has tended you for days, ever since you were brought in. Um, okay. Um, he falls silent and shuts his eyes. The transition here I find kind of interesting. Going back for a second, he's just said, his response to the ring is not yet at rest, says Gandalf. Gandalf has said, this business with the ring is a big, huge deal. Think War of the Ring, Frodo, right? And then he said, but the ring is not yet at rest. And this thing, it's not over yet, right? We have reached Rivendell, but the ring is not yet at rest. We, Frodo, might have more to do, right? And Frodo has responded with, it's very pleasant just to rest, right? Again, the ring is not at rest, but I am. Um, and then he closes his eyes. I find that has been as much as I want. He fell silent and shut his eyes. For a moment, it looks like Frodo is <laughs> going to sleep in protest, right? It looks like this is a response. Gandalf has just been saying ominous things about the future, right? War of the Ring. The Ring is not yet at rest. I need to recruit the uh, remnant of the kings from over the sea in order to help me with this big, big enterprise that we're doing, you know, saving the world, Frodo. And Frodo's like, I'm going to take a nap right now, right? Um, uh, 
Yeah. Matt says the only thing missing from after I find that has been as much as I want is a good morning, right? Uh, as if Gandalf were selling buttons at the door. No, thank you. We're, we don't want any adventures here. Good morning. Um, yes, there is, there is, I think, and, and the, the falling silent and shutting his eyes, right? Okay, this conversation is done. Did I mention rest? Watch me rest. Right here it comes. I'm going to, in lieu of engaging with you on the question of the ring being at rest and what is going to happen in the future, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna demonstrate the resting. Right? Show you how much I am at rest and model for you how I hope to proceed from here. Right? It sounds like that, um, but that's not actually what happens. Right after a while, he spoke again. I have been reckoning, and I can't bring the total up to October the 24th. He's not sleeping, or fake sleeping, right? He's not totally changing the subject. Well, he is changing the subject, right? But he's not being just resistant to what Gandalf was saying. He turns it back. Yeah, exactly, Mad Violinist. His reckoning is a bit of it is He is changing the topic from the future to the past, Right? Let's stop talking about what's going to happen next. Can we do that? Instead, let's just go back to what happened recently. Right? You said it was October 24th, right? Let's go back to your uh, second sentence, right? To your first speech upon my awakening, Gandalf. Let's start again, right? Um, I can't bring the total up to October the 24th. It ought to be the 21st. Um... And Gandalf again tries to evade him. So then Gandalf changes the subject, not wanting to talk about the past, not wanting to tell the story, um, and says, how do the side and shoulder feel now? Um, One of the things that's interesting to me about this, so Frodo has just acknowledged the time gap, right? You said it's the 24th, by my reckoning, right, by my memory, it should be the 21st. I've lost three days, right? And Gandalf's response, how do the side and shoulder feel now, sort of suggests, yeah, time has passed, right? You've been getting better. You've been being treated for three days. Um, it's not the 21st, it's the 24th. So... Um, being given this indication that Frodo's recovery is already advanced, but was a long and difficult process, right, um, uh, is one of the, the sort of effects of this. Though, again, uh, you know, Mad Violinist, if um, Frodo's reckoning is a distraction from the direction the conversation had been heading, uh, Gandalf is quickly up to the challenge by redirecting it, not back into the original path, right, but away from the direction that Frodo, you know, it's sort of like a faint and parry here as far as uh, on a conversational um, uh, level, right? Um, and yet, Katrina, you're right, there has already been reference to him having been in bed for a while and how Sam had hardly left his side except when they made him get some rest, which certainly suggests it's been more than a day, right? Um, uh, Sam was forced to sleep, so, you know, it's not just been like 12 hours and he's been out or something like that. Um, But now we get a clearer sense that it has been, as Tony suggests, a suggestive three days that he's been out. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, 
how do the side and shoulder feel now? Matt, you're asking about the side. Why is he asking about his side? The wound is up in his shoulder. Rather, the stab wound is in the back, uh, behind his shoulder. Um, why is he asking about his side? We know that Frodo was feeling cold in his side as well. Did he talk about it? Does anybody else know that? I can't remember. Did he... Do we know that he told them that the chill was all down his side? Now, I'm not... T- I, 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 I get how Gandalf could know about it now. I'm just saying that it's interesting. I mean, it puts it in that category. Um, I don't think... Yeah, Mad Violence, I don't think he ever talks about his condition at all. Um, he... We are told, the narrator tells us, that he feels better when Gorfindel lays his hands on him. Right? Um, yeah... Hmm. The other thing here, though, um, the other thing that I would point to, um, like it's not just about him talking in his sleep and Gandalf's conclusions slash mind reading that we talked about before. Um, but, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, Luke, you're right. Uh, he's also three feet tall and fell off a full-sized horse, so there's that, too. Yeah, he, he could possibly have cracked ribs as well as uh, 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 Morgul chill extending down his side. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I, uh would suspect that Gandalf, or sorry, that Elrond uh, would have been aware of the spreading of the chill down his side. Um, remember that even F- Sam and Aragorn can tell that there's something wonky with the wound, right? Um, Sam is like, the wound is already closed, right? Like, it's he got stabbed, which is not good, but it's healing, right? Why, what's wrong with my master, says Sam right? Um, They know that it's spreading. They can tell that it's spreading even though he hasn't talked about it. Um, I would myself tend to attribute that to Elrond uh, informing Gandalf of the patient. And it is possible, Tony, that Gorfindel also could tell that it was spreading not just to his shoulder and arm, but all down his side. Um, Frodo's answer, how do the side and shoulder feel? I don't know. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Irindus, we get references to the deadly chill spreading from his shoulder to his arm inside, but again, I don't think he tells them about it, is the thing. Um, I don't think it was a known symptom uh, prior to this. So I'm just trying to, fi- it, trying to think where it comes from, where it comes in. Um, again, my guess is Elrond, but whatever. Um, they don't feel at all, which is an improvement. So he doesn't feel pain, he doesn't feel a chill, but they're numb? 
He can barely move his arm. He can move it a little, which is good, right? And in order to confirm whether or not his hand is cold, he has to touch his own left hand with his right hand, right? Um, so it is coming back to life is his character, which is an interesting thing to say of a limb that you can't feel, right? I mean, if I woke up and my arm was numb, I would find that alarming, right? He finds it an improvement. So, I mean, it's not painful and it's not icy cold, it's not filling. He's not feeling that deadly chill. Um, and Irindus, thank you for reminding me of that uh, phrase. Um, he's not feeling a deadly chill through his arm and side. Um, but at the same time, he says it's it's coming back to life. He can move it now, um, and it's not. But it's still numb, right? Um, so I think I hadn't never really paid quite enough attention to I don't know, they don't feel at all. Right? Um, I think I'd always kind of glossed over that into thinking um, that he's basically saying, yeah, pain's gone. Right? Pain's gone. But that's not what he says. They don't feel at all. So again, I mean, yes, it's an improvement from where he was before, but um, to think of it not as a negative, no longer deadly chill, no longer pain, um, and instead to think of what he actually describes. My hand and arm are completely numb. I can barely move them. But on the bright side, when I touch it with my right hand, uh, it feels warm to the touch, Touch, so that's good, right? Um, uh, it's kind of clinical, right? Um, it's not cold. Good. It is mending fast. You will soon be sound again. Elrond has cured you. He has tended you for days, ever since you were brought in. Um, yeah, Arden Crayon, it is a little bit like uh, the Novocaine wearing off after a dental procedure. That's what I was imagining, too. Um, is he getting that weird burning sensation, right? Or maybe pins and needles, Tony, like you say. Um, yeah, Rococo, you're right. He was before worried about being maimed for life, so numbness could still be a relief. Though again, Rococo, to me, that's one of the reasons why numbness, I would I would kind of wonder if it would be more scary, right? Like, wait a second, I don't feel anything, right? Am I never going to use this hand again? But that's why the first thing he does is try to move it, and he sees motion, and he's like, oh, I guess so. I guess it's o- it's okay, right? I guess it's, uh, it's trending in the right direction, right? Um, yeah. Good. Rowan of Gondor says, I think it's interesting that Gandalf uses the word cured. Elrond has cured you. Yeah. That is really interesting. I wasn't thinking about that, Rowan, but you're completely right. Diseases get cured, right? Stab wounds don't get cured as a rule, right? Like a broken arm doesn't get cured. That gets tended, right? It can heal. Um, it's diseases that get cured. Um, yeah, heals, mends, right? Um, and I tend, I'm thinking about Eowyn's broken arm, right? When Eowyn breaks her arm, Aragorn says that has been tended with due skill, 
right? Um, that is, it's been the bone has been set. Um, Tormarthen, would it be used of poison? I don't think so. You don't cure poison, right? Um, I don't think cure is a verb that you use for that. Um, yeah, you neutralize poison. I mean, that's what the D&D spell is called, so... Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, apparently you cure wraithification, says Rococo. Yeah, this... But, to me, the, the interest... Because I mean, cure really is associated with disease. Um... And so the fact that I, I, even Sam could see it wasn't about the wound, right? Um, this is not about wound site treatment. There, this is a, a deep, this is a condition that needs curing. This is a disease that needs curing. And Elrond has accomplished it. Um, but you're right, those of you who are um, thinking about the fact that he's not actually fully cured, right? Um, uh, that's not apparent yet, right? Um, the important thing is that Elrond has reversed, you know, his condition. He's on the mend instead of on the decline, right? Um, he is not fully healed. Um, right, yeah, good. So, Belongsmond is making the distinction there, right? He's not fully healed. He's cured, but he's not fully healed. Um, Yes, and it's that Gandalf is going to talk about it as a residual wound, and you'll remember the wound site itself aches later on, right? Like a year down the road, his shoulder is going to hurt. Um, so it is going to be so that what lingers is almost like it is associated with um, um, uh, with the wound, right? Good. Dior is giving us. Uh, uh, the OED definition for cure. Um, yeah, to heal a disease or wound. Yeah, still, I don't see. Dior, do they have many, can you give me any, do they give any usages? The OED, do they give any usages with curing being used for wounds? Anyway, um, uh, figurative to remedy, rectify, remove an evil of any kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, we'd be interested to see how cure is used in relationship to uh, to wounds. Um, yeah, you're right, Mad Violinist. It is used in the player's handbook. So there you go. Cure wounds is uh, is of course the name of the primary healing spell in Dungeons and Dragons. So there you go. Um, Yeah. Uh, see, Dior, that 1400s example is a counterexample. Healing every wound, it cureth sores. Ah, see, that's different. That's different. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, Elrond has tended him for days ever since you were brought in. 
it is mending fast. You will soon be sound again. Your arm is mending. You will be sound. Sound is interesting. Um, Sound? You will soon be sound again. Sound means having integrity, right? Like, um, not compromised. Um, not falling apart anymore, Boomful. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Fourth Dauntless says I'd call a healthy tree sound. Um, so would tree beard, right? Um, uh, there are some trees that are sound as a bell, but bad right through, says Treebeard, right? Um, yeah. To be safe and sound, Rococo. Yes, yes. Um, it means healthy, but it's not just healthy, right? It's, it's complete, right? It is mending face. Not, not damaged, injured, or diseased. Yes. Yes. Um, we do associate soundness with mental health, Seamus, I think, um, largely because of sound mind and body uh, from the last will and testament uh, uh, standard language is the most common usage of that word applied to people, right? Um, so, I mean, that we're very, very familiar with thinking about it in that way, but... Um, uh, but I don't think that that means it, it is peculiarly uh, applied to that. It's just the one that we most frequently associate it with. Um, solidity and the appropriate level of strength, Ambrosius, I agree. Now, Tony, was it Tony, was making the... Uh, no, who was saying it? I forget. Um... Anyway, sorry. Somebody was just saying, Gandalf says that the arm is mending fast. He will soon be sound. So Frodo's arm is mending. It's not his arm will soon be sound again, right? Which, in a sense, is that's the thing that had the puncture, right? That's the, it was wounded. It was damaged. It will soon be sound, right? Um, his arm is mending, and he will soon be sound again. Um, and especially with then the segue to Elrond has cured you suggests or confirms, right? And this wasn't about your arm, actually, right? Your arm was sort of a casualty of this particular battle, but it, it's, it's never been about your arm. Um, this has been a systemic thing, right? Um, this has been about you. This has been about your soul. This has been about, you know, um, whether you were going to cross the line permanently and be have your spirit dominated in the Wraith world. That's what this is really all about. <laughs> exactly, James Levi. You're not a Wraith, so that's good. That's That would be one uh, paraphrase of, of Gandalf saying that. You will soon be sound again. Um, in a sense, even just talking about the... Um, 
even just talking about the Armin's shoulder and side is almost itself. I don't want to say an evasion. That seems not quite right. Um, but something along those lines, right? I mean, if Gandalf really wanted to get to the heart of the matter, he could be saying something like, so, Frodo, like, uh, how many fingers am I holding up? Feeling any gray shadows between us? Right? Are you able to, like, what color are the curtains over there? Are you able to make it out? Right? Are you, uh, how, I, uh, how, you know, on a scale of one to ten, how much like a wraith do you feel? Right? He's not asking Frodo questions about his spiritual state. Right? Um, uh, he is, um, asking about his side and shoulder, which are only really just uh, a symptom, not the cause, exactly. Really just uh, uh, really just an indicator to Aramarthen, exactly. Um, now, you're right, he does say before you were beginning to fade. I'm not saying he's avoiding the subject entirely. Uh, just that that's not what he's asking about. That was a, I'm telling you what was happening before, right? Um... This is, I am trying to assess, you know, your current situation, right? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bricktail says, instead of the chart from happy face to upset face. Um, and uh, you have to, I don't know if you've seen these charts, right? Um, Bricktails, I'm, th- I'm assuming you're thinking of the same chart I am thinking, which is the one like the pain chart that they, especially that pediatricians use, right? Show me the face, which uh, point to the face, which is how you feel right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, in order to, in order to indicate how much pain you're in. Um, exactly. So instead of that chart, uh, there's a chart of faces ranging from one drawn with very dark lines to one drawn with very thin lines. How do I look to you right now? Right. How, how gray and distant, uh, you know, on a scale of one to 10, would you say I look? Um, yeah, exactly. So, Tony, I agree. That's exactly how I'm reading it. He's not emphasizing the effect on Frodo's soul. Let's stick to the physical, right? Um, does seem to be that, right? Exactly. How thick is the butter spread over the bread? Belongs Bond. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Gandalf the even grayer than usual. (laughs) Yes. How gray exactly would you say I am right now? Um, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, He's not asking about that. What he's giving is assurance, right? Your arm is mending fast. You will soon be sound again, right? Don't worry. And then immediately after, Elrond has cured you. Has cured you. Present perfect tense. The cure is complete. As of now, in the present sense, the the, the, the completion of the cure is happening in the present, Right? It is done. As of now, you are declared cured. You will be sound again. Your arm is mending fast. Right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Though, he then gives that indication of it was a bit of a struggle. Right? He has tended you for days ever since you were brought in. Uh... He, Frodo, has just calculated the fact that it's he's been out for three days, right? 
Um, and it's Elrond has been tending him continuously for three days. So the good news is you're cured. You will soon be sound. The bad news is, whew, that was, uh, that was touch and go, right? As Gandalf has said in other contexts. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mad Violina says it's, it's odd that Gandalf would assure him of that, since Gandalf knows better. I think two things here. First of all, I think if he does know better, which I think you're right, that he knows that Frodo is probably unlikely to be fully sound again. Um, I don't think that Gandalf is surprised that Frodo's wound, this wound, is, does not fully heal. Um, I think that Gandalf can be forgiven for stretching things a little bit, right? Um, in order to reassure Frodo. He knows, or at least has a very shrewd suspicion, that Frodo still has much more in front of him, right? Um, so there's no percentage for Gandalf in saying, well, you're probably spiritually scarred for life, not going to lie about that, right? Uh, you'll probably never be the same again. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure you'll be all right on the on, on balance, right? Um, you know, that's... Um, that's... Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, good. Ambrose Aurelianus points out that he doesn't think Gandalf wants to underestimate Hobbit resilience either. Uh, maybe he suspects, but maybe does not really know whether or not Frodo will be sound again soon, right? Um, that seems possible. That seems possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you're sound enough for the adventure I'm about to send you on, right? Good enough for government work. Let's let's move on with this. Yeah. Um, but no, I, um, Ambrosius Aurelianus, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, uh, yeah, good. Okay. Um, yeah, he needs to start out in the best spirits possible. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's stop there. Next time we will go. So on the next slide, let's peek at the next slide. Preview of the next slide, right? Um, is when we're going to be talking about Elrond's medical procedures, right? So we've been... I've been trying to avoid talking about Elrond's medical, like the splinter and Elrond's medical procedures for months now, as you know, we've been talking about the wound and I've been saying, wait till we get there. So our first slide next week, will be there. We'll be talking about the medical procedures. So, uh, looking forward to that conversation next week. Um, exactly. Next week, on exploring the rings. You'll hear Frodo say days, right? There we go. Um, we did, two slides, Tony, but we did three questions also, right? So five 
total slides this week, which is really quite a lot. Um, so uh, we're gonna we're we're gonna leave it there, and then we'll come back to uh, Elrond's medical procedure, and then the rest of the uh, this. Uh, see if we can get to on the following slide after that next time. Um, uh, I look forward to that. It's field trip time, however, so uh, we're gonna. And I'm, this is the time where I usually say I'm switching over from Twitter, but I don't have to say that because I wasn't on Twitter because <laughs> Twitter's wrecked things. So, oh, yeah. We're just going to go on a field trip. Hey, Valorian. So next time, Elrond, half-elven, MD. That's right. He's breaking That's... all the rules. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly it. All right. Uh, so, speaking of Elrond, we're going to head back to Rivendell, because, right. you know, we can do that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, now, so here's the interesting question, uh, the sort of context I want to give before we head back to Rivendell tonight. First, mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time looking in the last homely house, right? We've explored the whole last homely house as it's represented in the game. But here's the interesting sort of thing to me, the interesting challenge tonight um, is not the challenge that we face tonight necessarily, but we will be looking tonight at the challenge that was faced by uh, the Locho developers in when they developed um, Rivendell. The description yeah. of Rivendell uh, in the book is almost all indoors, right? It's the last homely house, right? We know there's a valley, right? Frodo yeah. will look off into the distance. We've not gotten there yet, but he's going to look off into the distance and notice the pine woods, right? And imagine going out and taking hikes up there and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But like Rivendell, as far as we get it, is like the house and the valley and an outdoor oven where they can bake bannocks apparently when they're singing tra la la in the hobbit but um uh, but even that's an outdoor thing with an open fire apparently and uh and there's the you know the river and the bridge um so in the game they have the last homely. There's a building, right, called the last homely house, and it's where Elrond's library is, and it's where the Hall of Fire is, and it's where Bilbo's room is. All those in the place where the uh, Council of Elrond can be held in very loud voices. All of those things that we get from the book, right, are associated with the last homely house. Are there? Uh-huh. However, um, they decide to go beyond that. There's a bunch of other buildings and things yeah. in Rivendell. Right. Some of those things can be explained by the need um, to have in-game things. Right. Um, yeah. Like like the auction house and, and the skirmish camp and the stable and master. And yeah, yeah. exactly. But that, that by itself is not really an explanation of what they do in Rivendell. Mm-hmm. Um, because most of the buildings that they have in Rivendell are not that in fact, right? Um, and even some of those things themselves, like the stable master, for instance, well, we do need a stable, right, in Rivendell, because we know that Roheran is there for crying out loud, right? Aragorn's oh, yeah, horse yeah. is there. Um, so, um, so yeah, it, it's, it, it, we, we know, but, but more than that, Imladris, this is one of the things I think, um, Here's a comparison I wasn't expecting to make, but it actually works. Um, the depiction of Imladris in the game is in 
one way, at least, like Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies, <laughs> right? In yeah. the sense that Peter, one of the thing again, I, I always, uh, although I, 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 I have always, I, I, you know, terribly disappointed in his execution of this project. I will always admire and 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 like what Peter Jackson was undertaking to do in the Hobbit films, and that uh-huh. is tell the story incorporating all of the stuff that we're told later on, right? Fully incorporate the Hobbit story in the context of the third age of Middle-earth as it was developed later on. Yeah, the bit with the the, the Hall of Legends where you saw the statue of Gil-galad and the shards of Narsal and all of that is yes. enshrined. Yes, memento. exactly. We got that from the Lord of the Rings stuff, and also, for, and but anyway, yeah. So in Rivendell, the descriptions of Rivendell that we get, we get first and foremost, of course, Chapter Three of the Hobbit. Secondarily, um, we get the. Um, the NDRI still don't like the Hobbit movies either. Again, they were a complete failure. But what they were trying to what they were trying to do, I think, was a really cool and interesting thing. It's just they did it sadly, horribly. But, um, but again, Rivendell, right? We get we meet Rivendell in the Hobbit, and there it's called the Last Homely House, singular, like it's a single house, right? Yeah. And there's nothing that we get in the Fellowship of the Ring to lead us to think that it's not still a single house. It's still he's still kind of using the Hobbit model, right, for what Rivendell is. Later, of course, his ideas, Tolkien's ideas about Rivendell, kind of expand, right? You think about um, what is said about Rivendell in the appendices, right? The position that it's given, how Imogen, like when was Imogen founded? What was the point of Rivendell? It's not yeah. just Elrond's house, um, which is hidden in a valley. Um, it was like a stronghold, spiritually at least, right? It was besieged by the armies of Sauron. It was a, it was, it was a an outpost and refuge. Yeah, it was at, at least a kind of spiritual uh, uh, fortress, right? Or um, natural, naturally made fortress because it's in a boxed-in valley. Exactly. This is not just like Elrond's bed and breakfast, which is kind of what it's like. Um, you know, Elrond's kind of mythic bed and breakfast uh, in The Hobbit. The um, last homely hotel. The, exactly. Exactly. It's very like that, but that's... Uh, as its position gets... Like, when did Elrond get there? Why did he establish it? And under what uh, under what circumstances? Um, uh, you know, the whole concept of it begins to grow. And its importance as a center of Elvish culture in Middle-earth yeah. becomes yeah. enormous, right? I mean, it's... Gondolin Light, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's one of the... Gondolin Light, exactly. That's a very great way of thinking of it, right? Uh, Gondolin was this big valley in the mountains, right? Rivendell is a small valley in smaller mountains, right? Um, it's secret... It's that donut shape that they were always very fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, I agree. That's exactly it. it it's... It, the, the stature of Elrond grows... Of Elrond grows... Of, uh, of Rivendell grows. So, by the time True we incorporate... True Twilight's Elf B&B. <laughs> yeah, el- Elf B&B. Exactly. Exactly. Um, of course, which makes me think, well, you know... Um, um, 
Elrond does have the Ring of Air, right? So, uh, you know, there you are. Um, oh, it is the Airbnb. <laughs> it is the Airbnb. Right? You're welcome. It's, it's the Ring of Airbnb. That's it. That's it. Wow. The Ring of Airbnb. Um, so, um, as I say, as the so what Lotro does, therefore, is to me entirely defensible, that they don't just have the last homely house singular nestled in the middle of a valley. They preserve that, right? There is still a building which you can point to and say, hey, that's the last homely house, right? That's the thing that was alluded to, and which is... But then they kind, they, but they've kind of turned it implicitly into a kind of synecdoche, right? Like, so when Bilbo referred to Rivendell as the last homely house, it was because he was primarily thinking of Elrond's house, right? When he was thinking of Rivendell, it's the thing that you refer to it as. But it's not the whole thing. There must be more to Rivendell, um, and if so, what? Right. So again, so we think about we think about the uh, uh, th- that's therefore sort of the challenge, right? As they think about yeah, Rivendell, to be self-sustaining. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about uh, as a as a permanent Elvish community, as one of the centers of Elvish culture in late Third Age Middle Earth. Um, so you're going to depict uh, a a game world Rivendell that people can wander through and explore. So what does it have to look like? What does it need to contain? What should be there? You know, uh, in Rivendell, other than the there? last homeless, and what isn't there? So. That's what we're going to look at today as we go back to Rivendell. So let's head out, my, right. my, my little preamble to our latest Rivendell ramblings. We kind of started in an ad hoc way over there at Rivendell by the stables and looking at Roherit and, and looking at what I think are clearly the, the sort of the fuller stable building uh, up on the Where hill there. This time? We're going to, well, we're just going to stable master over there. So we'll start by the stables, okay. but I want to run over to the last homely house and kind of work out from there, I think. Sure, sure. So, yeah, well, so, I do know one thing right off the bat that is not in Rivendell. Hmm. Uh, there's no farmland. Yes. There's no place to grow crops. Yes. Yes. Good. Yeah, and that we've we've already seen that there's not much space in Rivendell for that. Oh, so that scene really in The long. Hobbit where they're complaining about the salad would not have happened. Right. <laughs> well, they could, you know, they just need to get their to get their uh, their produce delivered yeah. is all. Cabbage delivery. Oh, it's that's like when I order Instacart when I don't feel like running grocery. <laughs> bunch of dwarves roll up, a bunch of cabbages and yogurt right. cups. Right. Now Tony's asking, what about house and the sense of household and people? Um, it, it's interesting to think of Elrond's house, like Elrond's family, Elrond's people. Especially since most there, of his family don't live there. Right. Right. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I can't think that it's intended with that sense, even as necessarily a double sense, because none of the rest of Elrond's house or, you know, Elrond's people are sort of particularly associated with, uh, um, are particularly associated with hospitality, you know? Um, <laughs> Yeah. 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 That's kind of like, yeah, well, that'd be the ultimate irony, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, the sons of Elrond are not really in the hospitality business. Um, Arwen, as you say, is not even there much of the time, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to attempt it again. 
going to attempt to ride on horseback Use the mouse, not Rivendell. the arrow keys. You know, that's, for me, an actually a bigger disaster. Really? That's the yeah. only time I actually managed to get across uh, these bridges is when I finally used the mouse instead of the arrow keys. Unashamedly, I hate navigating with the mouse. I fall off everything when I try to navigate. I could fall off, you know, like... I could fall off Minas Tirith in the in the in the with a, when I'm navigating with a mouse. And I've tried to do that. That's hard. Yeah. Oh man, no way. Have no you way. ever? Yeah, I was like, no, my Minas Tirith. I'm sitting there going, I don't want to ride down to the third wall. Or <laughs> if I could just jump off, break a leg, right. deal with it. Right. Could I fall off Asphaloth? I don't know. Not if he didn't want me to, I suppose. Okay. Alright, so here we're coming back to the main house and we won't go in today because we uh, um, have almost finished the inside. We didn't really talk about the house of fire or the hall of fire, but we will when we get there. Yeah, we will. Okay, so here is the house. So let me dismount here. Alright. Well, let's start off over here, because we wandered over here a little bit before, but we didn't really get to... Adorable little footbridge. Talk to Glorfindel. Now, this is interesting. This is more than interesting. Because, see, this looks like a ruined gazebo. This looks like a ruin. Almost like Mm -hmm. a ruin. Now... The part that's here is in good repair, and the angles yeah. are all sharp and everything. It's not worn down or cracked or broken. It's overgrown, but that seems quite deliberate as it's overgrown with pretty flowers, right? Yeah. Um, but what's the that, point? That is weird. Yeah, it's like an elven equivalent of having a truck propped up on cinder blocks. It's just, you know, we'll get around to fixing. <laughs> were they going to make a whole gazebo? Up. And yeah, they just they just like made a third of it. And we're like, yeah, that's kind of Oh, oh wait, nice. look at this giant tree in the middle. I know what happened. All these these trees started to come up and the elves were like, yeah, the trees are more important anyway. And they decided to let it just tear. I mean, you think that's crazy, but my town actually has a tree that is going into the middle of the road. Like people have to go into the turn lane <laughs> to get around it as they let this tree grow. Right. For right. 200 and if that years. could happen to, to, to mortals, then, you know, you'd think the elvish contractors who are making this gazebo. Like, I mean, yeah, they could come back from their lunch break and all of a sudden there's this, you know, they just had a little bit of tra-la-la-lolly that probably only lasted a few decades and then there's this tree growing into the middle of it. I um, leave it alone for one age and looks what happened. <laughs> exactly. Um, and these kind of, these thick bushes could, I suppose, happen to anyone. But, so, maybe it's not a gazebo. Maybe this is just a terrace of some kind. Maybe it's just artistic. Well, yes. Or, or maybe it's a buttress against uh, erosion on the bank. Maybe. Like maybe, Therefore, maybe it supports it's a, the way down. It's a sign of the elvish desire to prevent change and decay over time. Which they must be all too aware of, being next, right. you know, this close to water. Right. They were probably True. here when this thing was all squiggly and stuff, and That's now right. it's all... 
Right, this used to be a mere creek coming down out of the mountains, and now... Yeah, then, wow, before we knew it, that one tower toppled into it. So. But this also... Oh, hang on, I'm sliding down into the river myself. Um, I, <clears throat> I wonder, where... When Elrond commands a flood... Mm-hmm. So, that's where we've got this coming... I wonder where I think, I the flood know. is... Where do the flood waters gather? I Which think he we then determined releases. it was past the log bridge. Past the log bridge is where he, he would have. Yeah, because if he did it around here, it affect it would affect the the the, the valley. Yeah, yeah, it would. I mean, he'd 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 have water in his basement for sure, mm-hmm. right? With the last homely homely house over here, and yeah, I mean, even when you look and you see things like that tree, like over here, the tree with the with the orange yeah, the leaves. Out, yeah, just like at my local park. Right, that that sucker would be gone, or at least the leaves would be all stripped away if there had been a flood relatively recently. And time of, uh, you know, the time where we are in game here in uh, Rivendell is, you know, right after the um, council. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, and then we can just see the log bridge from here, and there's yeah. a big old canyon down there. So yeah, presumably, presumably. Um, and no structures, so that'd be the safest place to hold water. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Well, here's Glorfindel, of course. We're um, feeling all nice and happy up here. And and he's very he's very white and shiny, right? Um, yeah. His purple. Notice sash he's giving everybody really hope right now. Oh, right, because we're standing near him, right? Uh huh. Oh, our hope is fifteen. Good grief! Whoa. Glorfindel is a big deal. Glorfindel yeah. is a big deal. Yeah, kinda. That's kinda, heard. that's pretty awesome, actually. Uh, yeah. I'd never noticed how much hope you get when you stand near Glorfindel. <laughs> um, wow, that's. Oh, well, there's anyone who's really faced peril and us, uh, you know. Yeah. A little older than Elrond. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and you wonder if that's some of like that memory of Valinor sort of just leaking off of him. Here's this player who's obviously like engaging in a quest with Glorfindel uh, as she's appearing and disappearing, and I'm just like trying to sneak in closer to look at his shoes. Uh, <laughs> oh, those are very nice shoes. Let's yeah. see his his house symbol was of the swan boats, right? Uh, no, it was the it was the flower. It was the flower. Flower. I did a commission of this. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think he was the gold because the swan was Tuor's symbol. Yeah, that's right. It was his. It was his best buddy's symbol too. So. Yes, yes. His purple sash, like his hand-tied purple sash instead of a belt, is interesting. It's um, an interesting accessory. Bricktails. That thing on his right wrist. We've seen that before. Didn't Elrond have one of those too? Yeah, it's like some sort of bracer. That's what it looks like, or like, like he's wearing a sort of a loose-fitting bracelet, which, you know, sort of fo- droops of down kind. as as he's got his arms hanging down. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, does he have a V-neck on either side of his thing? Oh yeah, good question. No, actually, the back of his is different. It's he's not got like a, he's got a proper collar, though. He's got also got longer hair. But yeah, no, it looks yeah. like a high collar all around the back. I- I'm sad he doesn't have curly hair, but I understand why, given the constraints of rendering. And- uh, um, 
but I was drawn with like big luscious Colleen Doran curly blonde hair. What's up with these standing stones? Oh, it's a bench. It's a bench. It's this really ugly bench. Well, it's au natural, right? The bench is, looks rustic. like it's designed to look like the to look like the arched bridge, right? Mm-hmm. You can't sit on the br- the bench. No, I, I guess you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of. Okay, so let's see. So if you sit on the bench, you're looking out from the bench, over the waterfall, down through the valley. You're looking down the length of the river of mm-hmm. the river of Rivendell, right? Yeah. Up to your right is the house. Who's sparkling? Must be Gorfindo. <laughs> if somebody's sparkling, yeah. it's got to be Gorfindo. Oh, the, the sparkly sunlight and dust modes. Yeah, that's Gorfindel's effect. Yes. Um, interesting that we find Gorfindel alone in this sort of contemplative spot looking out. Where is he looking? Where are you looking, Gorfindel? Like, off towards the path down. So he's looking out, right? He's looking at the path which is the entrance to the valley, is the direction. I don't know. He did spin around to talk to me, so. Oh, did he? Yeah. But is this his default position or just where he got pointed? I don't know. Oh, no, he does. Yeah. Yeah. When you click on him, he spins around to talk to you. So he's very polite and attentive that way. He's polite and attentive. Okay. Not sure what he's It almost looks like he's looking up at the entrance. That's what it's it's where he was before, yeah. But again, maybe that's a coincidence. But anyway, him being isolated like this is interesting, right? The choice seems to it seems to imply, you know, he's a well alone in singular, right? That he is Mm -hmm. set aside from the other elves here, you know. That that he's to emphasize that he's a significant deal. also, almost, I don't know, the choice to have him sitting out here and not in a central place, right? Not, like, visibly a part of the community, you know what I mean? Is interesting. Yeah, you think he'd be, like, the pop star, mega star or something. Right, like, there are no, there are no other elves standing around with him, chatting with him. He's not over where other people are. He's not in That's the marketplace. This is where he goes He's to escape his yeah. adoring fans. Right. And here we are, here are all up in his face, right? But We're the... Where the gold sunshine and the gold leaves mesh with his gold hair yeah. and the golden sunlight. <laughs> but I think that that's a good reading of Gorfindel, right? That Gorfindel, like, because there's a way in which Gorfindel doesn't totally belong here, right? He's not, uh-huh. uh, you know, he's He's dressed just in white all the time, right? like he's like yeah. some sort of silent film hero you're talking about the days for heroes i mean this is the guy who walks around looking and acting like a hero all the time yeah amathorn says that he believes that gorfindel gives you the greatest amount of hope of any other character or place in the entire game um i can totally believe it tony wants to know if gorfindel tra la la is with gildor and his people oh you know it you think so yeah no one with gold hair dresses in white doesn't play you know a guitar or something Right. Yeah. No, I think he would. I think he would tralalalali. I think everybody tralalalali. I've been Elrond tralalalalis occasionally. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway. Okay. 
What else have we seen him in action? Have we seen him like actually like fight or something? Is because I I would hazard a guess he'd make a really interesting minstrel class. But we do see him fight. And there's that one instance that you get to do with him when you're. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the the last alliance, right? No, no, not in the last alliance. In the oh. um, there's the instance where you're fighting against the the gaunt men and stuff, and he oh, goes yeah. with you. It's in. It's like a. Uh, yeah. Is he is, he is he shouting? Is he doing shouty stuff, or is he a guardian? I don't think so. I think he was more like a guardian. Yeah, probably. I think he was a tank. It's just yeah. Now this is just my dreams of sort of a you know heavy metal elf. I just you know <laughs> I really like the aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's. Uh, Let's look around here. Hey, look, we get another demi gazebo here. I guess it's just a Rivendell thing. This one at least has yes. a floor. This one has steps. Yeah, yeah, a floor they and steps. This one. Okay. Um, yeah, it's 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 almost like it's just a frame. Yeah, and sure. like and they're all notice they're all facing with uh, the last homely house at their opening, right? The 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 sort of the the wall, not wall, but the column part of it is facing out, so it creates this. Like the grounds are part of the last homely house here, and I really and like is, the yeah. the large unfinished rocks, just like the the um, the bench. But no, no it's just a ginormous boulder standing here Many in years. front of the yeah. And it's interesting. Like I don't think this is shaped at all, um, but you get the sense that when they were making and when they were building the house, they were just like, you know what, this rock is really cool. Let's just leave this yeah. rock here. It looks awesome. Yeah. Would you totally know, believe that. Like the respect for the rock, just like the respect for the trees and everything, right? That it's um Notice anyway, all yeah. the flowers. We have all the fall trees, but we have tons of flowers everywhere. Yes. Yes. And that's part of the the new cosmetic upgrade, right? Those the flowers are all yes. newish, yeah. All right, well, let's head out over this way, because we came in the other way. So we're heading up north, and the first thing that we get is, of course, a game yeah. function place, right, which is the auction yeah. hall. Um, so we have rather cra crass flags to draw our attention to the game function building. But notice where they place it. So we've got a, we've got a little path up into... The hills here. So now keep this in mind. This is interesting to me yeah. because remember the scale of this whole game, right? Yeah. We just ran what would have been like, you know, a day, two days journey, um, yeah. you know, in the rest of the, in the rest of the game world. Um, yeah, I believe it. And so they're going to have an auction house. They could just have an auction dude, right? Um, yeah. The, like, like they did with the, um, the, um, the vault keeper. Right, who's mm -hmm. just like a random dude who's standing there in the in the courtyard of the last homely house. They could have, if they wanted to have a, an auction. Um, so this is why, like the fact that some of these buildings and sites in Rivendell have game functions, I, doesn't make them less interesting to me. Right, um, because again, they could have had an auctioneer. They could have had a dude who, like, when you interacted with him, it did well, this function. Who was standing there? like next to the escrow person in uh, in the last homely house. Instead, they built this whole area and they have a dwarf here with his several dwarves trade goods. Yep. Are they all dwarves? Yep. His yeah, other they're all, dwarf. They're all yep. 
Good. So we have dwarf merchants who are clearly mobile, right? They're all selling things off the back of trucks. Um, so we have the idea of dwarvish commerce coming into Rivendell, right? Yeah. And of course, remember, it was quite a ways away. Yes. Right. So we had to, we had to, we had to hoof it for a little bit to get here. So the dwarves don't really live among the elves, right? They don't live down in the, you can't see anything else from up here. They're surrounded by rock, not on top, of course, open to the air, uh-huh. but still they're surrounded by rocks. So, so the Lotro developers have said, okay, dwarves are merchants. We know they travel to sell things. We know that's one of the purposes of the dwarf road, right? That goes across the Shire and through Bree and into Rivendell, right? So yep. um, the map tells you that the, the dwarves came in this direction with trade goods. And since we know that there is, you know, what's the reaction when Bilbo and company come into Rivendell? It's not dwarves. Oh, I've never seen one before. They're not welcome here. They tease them, right? They make fun of their beards. Um, even yeah. the even the way in which we're told that, like, Thorin and company didn't particularly like elves, right, at the beginning of Chapter 3 of The Hobbit, suggests yeah. that they encounter them a fair bit, right? Enough to be routinely annoyed by them, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's... Um, uh, so that's again. So 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 they're they're building off of those ideas to imagine in Fellowship of the Ring era Rivendell we have this uh, uh, dwarvish encampment where it's obviously with the elves that they're trading, right? And yet, yeah, I mean, like we said, they left for cabbages and stuff. Right. Exactly. Um, they're trading with the elves, and and yet they're separating themselves from the elves as well. So yeah. that's an interesting, I think, kind of exploration of. Uh, of that relationship. I had forgotten that they were dwarves up there. I remember that there was the auction house up there, but I had forgotten that the, that they were dwarves. There's another rapid stream coming down. I think you can get up there through the merchant. Actually, the merchant path, I think, does go up there. I just never find out where I'm supposed to be. Oh, up to that gazebo up there? Yeah. I think you have to go off-road. Oh. The other path goes up and around, I think. Hang on, let's do that. Let's go up there. Yeah, no. Now that I see there's something up there, I want to go trust you for that <laughs> yeah because this looks like not a demi gazebo but a whole gazebo they finished the darn thing well oh, i guess you can't mostly. get there i guess you do have to get this fruit cutting there's a big opening the haven of what of orladion 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 huh well this is a deluxe gazebo it's bigger taller i mean than the others oh, with look, more Bingo elaborate. Boffin. Bingo Boffin is here. Oh, maybe just to me. Maybe just to you. I think, yeah. Yes. But I don't. I don't remember During finding this Bingo place up here. Must be used for quiet reflection. Oh, is that what he says? That's what he's saying. Well, he's probably right. <laughs> I mean, it's not a fair. Yeah. 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 The, but once um, again, we notice the fact we have a gazebo that is absolutely exposed to all the elements, including no roof, right? Yeah, just yep, the one. No, yeah, no glass in there, just. Just. Yeah. Well, it's very just, beautiful. And what, and is it dawn? As we're getting, no, it's dusk. Okay, yeah, dusk. We're, so we're getting, we're getting, that's nice, we're getting to yeah, we're look the off sunset into the sunset. Yeah, watching the sunset with Gorfindel doesn't get any better than that. 
looking out yeah. over the treetops to those very tall, interesting buildings, which we'll get a chance to Oh, you see the explore. lights are coming on in them. Yeah, yeah. You can see the elves walking on the paths down below, so you can do some people watching from here, too. Yeah, look at the beautiful foliage. Very ornate and the and very different from any gazebos we've seen out in the wild, right? Very different from the Arnorian gazebos and even from the gazebos that we saw. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to publish a little monograph. Gazebos I have known. Um, even from <laughs> the ones that we saw, like, you know, the, the, the elvish ones, right? Like the Noldor ones and stuff. Yep. These are... Uh, uh, quite different. Hmm. Okay. This is definitely not the gazebo the devs intended to have the council in, though. Uh, remember that picture I tweeted at you last week? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'll no, drop that I... link in for people to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible that was it. It's different. It's definitely different. Yeah, I think it is different. It is similar, Catrion, to what we see in a Regan, but it's not the same. Um, yeah. I agree there are definite similarities. Okay. Let's see. I want to go... Where do I want to go? I want to go... Is there anything down here along this way? Spire meeting, I think. Yeah, down eventually. Well, okay, so here's another thing to notice that we shouldn't take for granted. Look at the paths. We have cobblestones with a lot of green stuff growing up in the middle and no edges, right? Nothing. I mean, it just sort of fades into gra like the grass, overgrows it more and more until you reach like this, this place. This is a, once to point a more thought-out road, but once again, they have that laissez-faire uh, yeah. attempt thing when it comes to nature. Right. I mean, like, so here you can see this is where the edge used to be. But, you know, I doubt these cobblestones ever had a, a sharp edge, right? Yeah. I doubt there was ever a curb to this road. I think no. it's, I think it's, I don't know what. And like, yes, it's fun, but it's not like it's fallen into neglect. I mean, it's old. Sure. I'm sure these cobbles were laid thousands of years ago, but it, but but it's not fallen into neglect. Rather, well, probably because it's well used. You can see that right. the, the, the central path kept off right. the center because that's where people are walking. Exactly, and grass is growing over here. But, but again, like they could maintain it if they wanted to, right? I mean, I'm sure somebody could come along with some, you know, some Roundup or something occasionally to 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 clear the weeds. But they don't want to do that. It's that the 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 indeterminate margin right between the stones and the uh and the grass this seems to me a part it, of the feature right yeah you get the feeling the elves are definitely one of those well if it becomes a problem we'll look into it <laughs> right but I, I don't think it's, it's it's not just apathy right it's it's i think it's part of the the connection with um uh i mean i hate to say like connection with nature because that sounds cheesy um but it's the kind of thing yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about, right? I mean, like, there's no yeah. paths, there's oh, no lamp posts. There's this doesn't look like a road, right? Um, I don't think it's apathy either. It's definitely one of those they've recognized that this is not a thing that needs attending to. 
No, Obviously, no, and they have made, they've put down cobblestones because that's better than having mud, you know. Yes. Um, but uh, but they don't. They're not. Everything around where we're standing right now looks like a random spot. I mean, apart from the houses you can see in the distance between the trees in a couple places, the rest of this looks like it could be any random place in the forest, except it has this cobbled path running through it, right? Oh, I just had a thought. I just had a thought. What if the cobbled road was laid down for the armies in the last alliance as they passed through? (laughs) Yeah, interesting. Because there would have been a lot of people here then, right? So uh, yeah. with that many people around, possibly wagons and siege stuff. Yeah, exactly. the 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 paths would have been all churned into mud, and uh, yep. yep, yep, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's just one of the clearly one of the themes of Rivendell, right? As it's um, depicted here in the game, is that it's. So there's, there are many things happening. But again, thinking back to that gazebo, like looking at that gazebo from the landward side, you know, as we are here, right? <laughs> You've got this really elaborate, ornate thing in the middle of wilderness, right? That's yeah. what Rivendell is about. None of this is tended. None of this is, this is not a garden. It could be yeah. a garden, right? The whole place could be a beautifully tended garden. It's not a beautifully tended garden. It's a natural yeah, you get landscape. The feeling if manpower might be a problem, right? Right. Well, you know, you got all you got to. They're all going west. Well, it's true that you know there. Half the gardening staff goes west. How are you right. going to maintain them? There will be fewer undergardeners than there used to be back in the day, but uh, but yeah, again, I, I certainly think it's. Um, yeah, ah, that's good. Frumius Bujum says that the Elvish contractors asked if the edge of the path should be here or not, and they were told both no and yes. So that explains yes. why, they, <laughs> there why, why the but, path. But yeah, is. but also notice that there's a beautiful gazebo, but there, there, where's the well-worn path up there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There wasn't even a path, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. We had to, we had to, we had to rough it across country to get to uh, the gazebo yeah. there, right? So yeah, like all of it these got overgrown, or they forgot to put it. Yeah, these really detailed, really elaborate, really beautiful uh, constructions, and um, and uh, uh, and yet the wilderness largely left on unti- you know, everywhere where there is wilderness, everywhere where there are trees and forest, it's left untouched primarily, um, and that's that's an interesting. I think it's not a shocking interpretation, of course, of Rivendell, but I think it's important um, to to note. Um, like the big rock that I was pointing out, right? Um, uh, in front of the house. Um, so, uh, so I, I just, I, I do think that that's a really good interpretation, a really interesting mix. Um, all right. Well, I can, we can't explore the whole valley in, in one week here. Um, I'm going to, oh, uh, we have lots more time. To we cover have lots it. more time in Rivendell. So we'll come back and cover the rest of it. I, I want to talk about one thing though. I talked about this in my Grifflet stream, uh, last week. Um, but it's specifically relevant to here, so I wanted to share it with you guys. Um, I was—I got an email at the end of last week from a guy who wants, who asked if I would be willing to contribute a chapter on the exploring the Lord of the Rings field trips, specifically to an to a book of academic essays to be published uh, in the context of, of, uh, academic archeology span for real. 
for real. In particular, they're interested in the phenomenon of what they call archaeo gaming, which is exactly <laughs> what we've been doing. That is interacting with uh, with an immersive video game environment in archaeological ways, right? Wow! And so they pointed to um, they pointed to specifically, of course, our, our discussion of the Arnorian ruins and everything, and the way that we were oh, yeah. looking at the ruins carefully in order to kind of piece together the um, um, to sort of piece together what happened in the history of of, of the Arnorian uh, realms as they're you know suggested and everything. Oh, like um, when we were thinking if something was a leisure leisure palace or a siege fortress. Exactly, or like that. all that stuff, right? So. Oh. Dang. So they 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 they, they want to so they want to do this collection they want to publish a collection of essays, uh, which are talking about and giving examples of the phenomenon of archaeo gaming and the and the and the point the goal uh, is again these are these are like uh, you know professors of archaeology who are interested in this and they're oh, going to be I'd hate to be examined by anything <laughs> I know right it does make <laughs> me feel a little bit a little bit shy about it too in some ways because I'm totally an amateur when it comes to that but I was just. Pulled but anyway, from art school. <laughs> they were they were um, uh, they, they were really interested in what we were doing. They said it's a perfect example of the stuff that they're really interested in. Um, and the, you know, there are other people doing similar things with other games and other game environments and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, they they sort of want to talk about this phenomenon of archaeo gaming as like a a gateway into you know like real world study of archaeology. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think this is really cool, right? I think that's that is uh, yeah. phenomenal. Now, needless to say, I don't actually have time to write a book chapter on archaeo gaming and the like. What they want us to do is to do a write up of of like some of the stuff that we were doing with some examples and some images and things. Um, of um, oh of the you know to to, to just kind of discuss the the process you know like our experiences in and the 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 Arnorian ruins are clearly you know especially in uh, like the Lone Lands and and the Trollshaws that we that we were doing I would say particularly the Lone Lands um, yeah. is what they would really like us to talk about um, I guess I wish I had time to sit down and write a book chapter like that but I totally don't so. This uh, is not only an explanation of this really quite unexpected but really cool email that I received, but also a call for uh, collaborators. Um, I hate to let the opportunity pass by. I mean, the opportunity to talk about this stuff and, and uh, uh, you know, do... Um, uh, do write, you know, actually contribute, you know, ha- have a, have a, a book chapter somewhere in the uh, video game slash archaeology world on the exploring Lord of the Rings field trips. That's super cool, but I don't wow. have time to do it. So, if you are interested in collaborating on this, if you would like to uh, uh, to help us actually write a chapter like this, I keep saying us because this clearly can't be me. I don't have to. I'd have to say no if it were just me, <laughs> but I don't want to say no. But if it's going to happen, it, uh, it can't be. I can't be the one writing it. I could. I could help occasionally, right? I could uh, give some direction. Um, I think the best thing to do would be to kind of, uh, kind of pull to get go through, some, you know, the recordings of the 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 the. 
um, field trips that we did in those in those parts, you know, in those sections, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, see what sure. we could pull together from that. Um, and then I'd be, you know, happy to kind of give directions and look over things and stuff like that. I, I could give a lot of raw data. I've never put together an academic paper before. I was right. an art major. Right. As Bilbo would say, I won't be too critical. Um, anyway, if you're interested <laughs> in collaborating on this, um, send me an email uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get together on this. Um, uh, we'll put you in the team. And that's a shout a- out to everyone. Not just me, right? Yeah, no, it's a shout out to yeah. everybody. Everywhere. Shout out to Ed, anybody, in. anybody who right. wants to who wants to contribute. Be happy to have yes. you contribute, and we can all we can all co-author a, 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 a you know a chapter from the exploring the Lord of the Rings community on our field trip experiences. Anyway, all right, super cool, totally unexpected, kind of weird, but really neat uh, opportunity. So again, send me send me an email, and I'll we'll start we'll start the ball rolling. Um, Zach, uh, one of the listeners who he was in, he was at, uh, the Grifflet stream on Friday actually has, a, which is super useful, a spreadsheet with like all the places we've gone on our field trips. I was like, wow. holy cow, that's fantastic. So he shared it with me. So we have a resource there Yay! to help, uh, uh, <laughs> guide our reexaminations of, uh, of, uh, our field trips for, for these things. So Anyway, um, we will uh, we will form a team to write our chapter and uh, d- do some uh, do some write ups of this stuff. This, this uh, might be a good dinner discussion at Mythmood as well. Yes, I think so. It would be well. This what it sounds like is a really excellent uh, uh, presentation at Mythmood for like next oh, year, Lordy. right? You know, we write this up yeah, and then we'll, sure. then we'll 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 present our findings. You know, uh, at Mythmood yeah. next year, it'll be great. Anyway. Wanted to make sure, so we should, I should, I should uh, let you guys go. It's getting late. Um, but I wanted to make sure to tell you about that. Send me an email. You can just send an email to info at signumu.org. Uh, that'll, that'll, that'll get to me. And, um, uh, and I'll, I'll put you on the list and then we'll start the team going. So thanks everybody. Thanks for, uh, contributing to this fun community, which has apparently gotten the attention of the archeo gaming world, um, which I didn't even yes. know existed, but there it is. Neither. It's so awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad that it does. And it has enriched my life to know that it exists. Um, in fact, Hey, I was just amused to find out that this kind of funny thing that we're doing is a thing, right? I didn't even, I didn't even know that other people did that kind of thing. So cool. That's neat. What do you know? What do you know? Anyway, Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight, and I will see you guys next week. We will be back next week. Next week is Nader Moot, but I will be here on Tuesday. So uh, we'll be be able to have classes normal next week and the week after. Yeah, so we'll be on Landreville next week. So I'll be here for the next two weeks. I will be gone the last week of April. Um, So... Uh, so that would be what three weeks? Three weeks from tonight, I won't be here, but I'll be here. We'll be classes normal Tuesday for the next the two weeks. 30th. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night. All right. Thanks. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of the Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.